This episode is brought to you by UC San Diego Health, ranked number one in San Diego by U.S. News and World Report. Last time I checked, being ranked number one by U.S. News and World Report is a good thing. They are the official healthcare provider of the San Diego Seals. Big fan of their work. That's UC San Diego Health. recording button we are live this is the first time we're on camera too so we got to give the little apparently that helps sync everything up like i know what i'm doing <laughs> i'm already sweating are you sweating it's hot i mean it's cooling down you can feel it cooling down like i was in here before and it was a nightmare all right well we uh we did some hot yoga earlier you ever done hot yoga do i look like i do yoga <laughs> i don't know i don't know what you do on bye week this is the first time I i've don't, talked to you coming off a of bye weekend i don't do hot yoga I've tried yoga a few times. You ever do P90X? Yes. You ever hear P90X? I've heard of P90X. That's P90- like a throwback at this point. Yeah, kind of. So there was like this whole process with P90X that you had like a bunch of different discs, right? Yep. Like, you know what a disc is, right? Yeah. Like a DVD? Oh, yeah. Like the whole like the box set. The box like set. I had the box set. Yeah. So the box set of the DVDs for P90X was um, different workout for six days of the week like a different area of the body or no just... no it was a different type of workout so one was yoga uh-huh one was pilates one was um uh like weight training one was you know jumping around like a kangaroo there was all sorts of goofy shit that you did what stuck with you i like the i don't even know if it's pilates what's pilates is that the one where you lay on your back and you do a bunch of I actually have no idea what Pilates is. I, that's been a punchline for years as I'm going to Pilates class. I thought it was the one with the bands. Where <laughs> yeah, like I, I you're think doing you're right. Like, so, okay, it's not the Pilates. It's, it's plyometrics. Okay. That's like stretching. Sounds like Pilates. Yeah. Plyometrics, Pilates. I'm yeah, not but a, it's like the one where you're kind of jumping around and you're doing a bunch of kind of dynamic, goofy stuff and jumping and box jumps and this and that. It, it, that was fun. All right. Is that what you do on your bye weekends, or is that what no. you do to stay in shape? I ride the bike. With Peloton? I am no? a shape. <laughs> I have a shape. I'm not in shape. I got the I, teardrop. No, I am in a shape. Okay. It's just a shape of a ball. All right. A pear. But I've seen you move on the pickleball court, as we <laughs> talked about last week. I mean, it's not terrible, but you got a bad knee, so you got to figure out what works for you. A bike is a non... I do the bike, and so I have a, uh, a road bike, Uh huh. and I... My wife got me a trainer for Christmas one year. Oh, the, that's a take a hint gift. Like, hey, I know, right? how about something a little nicer? Sorry, right. we, we do that to each other. When you're married for 25 plus years, you can give those gifts that, you know, like a toaster. I got my wife a toaster. <laughs> Not the most romantic gift years one through 10. Uh-huh. But when the toaster's like a $300 toaster, yeah. then it's a romantic gift. It's like a gift. good toaster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, listen, I sourdough toast is a vice of mine, so... Anyway, it's a smeg. Now, you ever heard of a smeg toaster? I've heard of, I was going to no. say smeg mud. No, but, but that, <laughs> it's called a smeg. I don't know. I've never heard of the smeg toaster. It's a smeg toaster. What's special about it? Why is it a $300 toaster? I don't know. It looks cool. All right. <laughs> it's white. 
Hey, listen. It's a smeg and chrome on the outside. Just a designer toaster? Have you ever heard of Fisker cars? Uh-uh. You got to look up Fisker cars. What's a Fisker car? It's like a smeg toaster for a car. It's super cool. Just looks nice? Looks cool. Does it work Electric. Well? Okay. Boogie, woogie, woogie. Yeah. Right? And then, so it's an electric car. I'm very interested in this whole Fisker concept. I am Possible sponsor for you. Out. You should look up the Fisker California company. Do you know anybody at Fisker Absolutely or just a not. fan of the fan of the product? I'm a fan of the pictures online. Have you driven? I've never one? actually seen one. Oh, I've never, never seen driven one. one. All right. I know nothing about it, but I do. I have a, an electric vehicle, as you know. Yes, I do. And so then, if there's other electric vehicles, I wanted to. You know, there, there's another one, new one coming out that's super cool. Um, what's it called? Ludicrous. No, that's that's a rapper. Have you seen? The new, I don't know what I'm talking about. Fisker. Look at Fisker. It up. All right, I'll take a peek at F-I-S-K-E-R. it. F-I-S-K-E-R. I like that you have the electric car and then the truck to, to accompany it. So just My so carbon you're footprint, I rode my bike to work yesterday. My carbon footprint is very small. Did your wife suggest ride to work <laughs> or was that just uh, self? No, I just decided it was, I hadn't ridden my bike to work since I had my knee operated on. So When was that, by the way? It was like November 13th or something is, like that. Is there still the, the Steve Govett athlete deep down that when you come out of a surgery, you're just like ready to just get Every after day. PT and come in? and Every day. But that's different. I mean, the athlete mindset is different for like recovering from an injury than it is like running a business. Because people get hurt and the older they get hurt, the more depleting and debilitating it is. Did you wake up ready to just beat the shit out of PT? And like yeah, I went for- to PT. In fact, the PT group that I went to that got recommended to me by the doctor, uh-huh. and, but the team doctor, UCSD Health, did my knee, and they recommended a PT group. And I went to this PT group. Amazingly enough, PRN PT. Uh huh. They're now no the free ad seals, but- no free ad, but th- they are a sponsor. Correct. They are now the sp- a sponsor of the seals because I loved the person that I worked with so much. She was such a pro. Um, And it might have been partially, she said, I said I was with the SEALs, and she says, the SEALs, she goes, do you know Eli Goldbrick? No way. And I said, yes. And she apparently went to Ithaca College (laughs) with Eli Goldbrick. And in here in San Diego. Ithaca connection? Yeah. That's unbelievable. So I was... So anyway, I worked with her quite a bit. And the things I said to her, like I, I tore my knee many years ago in college uh-huh. and I came back and played. I actually tore my ACL in one of the first games of my junior year. And I played the rest of the season with no ACL. Oh, God. So, and, and you know, I had a fairly successful season. Tore my ACL, my left ACL, and then got it fixed. Uh-huh. Came back senior season, had a great season. And then had some challenges. My playing career in, in the in the NLL mill, NLL you know first season of the NLL 1998 championship, I kind of messed it up. There were stairs going up at halftime. Oh God! To the locker room, and I literally had three goals in the first half Sick brag. of the game, right? Yeah. And then I walked up the stairs and I buckled my knee on the stairs on the stairs in the locker room. Because there were like four steps to go up into the locker room. 
How do you buckle your knee? I don't going? know. It was oh, weird. Yeah, it was just, just like a twist stare. in my knee or to, did something, you know, running up the stairs. We're excited. We're yeah. winning. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, win a championship here. I went out there and ba- could barely run. In, and the doctor says to me, Dr. Larry, um, um, Dr. Larry. Anyway, he says. <laughs> just Dr. Larry. Dr. Larry. Um, he says he was going to put a shot in it. Like the cortisone shot? Yeah. Like the classic. I, so I wanted the shot coach. Yeah, to be able course. to play, to finish the game, right? Uh-huh. And he goes, because they had, they had done a, uh, a scope in it a couple of years before that. So he'd been in there. Larry Miller, that's his name. There Dr. you go. Larry Miller in Philadelphia. He um, he was going to do a scope. He did a scope on my knee, and then he's going to put a shot in it because I want to play the second half of a championship series. Yeah, this is the best two out of three. We're was winning, this game we, three? Game one. Oh, we, okay. we were winning game two. Had a really good first half. I was like, let's go. Uh-huh. And he wants to put it on my knee. He goes, you have to promise me you're not going to play it again. Because my knee was really messed up. In that series, meaning no, in no. that series or ever My career. Again. You're done. Really? And I said, okay. And he put it in, and I retired. Now, lots of dynamics going on because I played. that was my last game in the National Lacrosse League, 1998. Was game one of that series? Game two was the last game. We won in two games. Okay. Crazy story. It was on a Tuesday night in Baltimore. Okay. National Cross League, the mill always had a single game final. Uh-huh. National Cross League, first year, we get a, we do two things, revolutionary things. We got rid of spandex shorts because we wore spandex what, shorts. What a bummer that right? was throwbacks. for the ladies. Westberg wants to bring the throwback spandex short back to the to the National Cross League. Of course League he does, him that. and Dobie. Of course. Yeah, Dobie would look good. Um, <laughs> and then, where the hell was I? And then you were in Baltimore game two, Baltimore Tuesday. game two, right? And so the National Cross League does two things: they do, they start best two out of three, uh-huh. and they go away from the spandex shorts. Okay. We had a game one in Philly. We were the top seed against Baltimore. Right. Baltimore can't get the building uh, for the next weekend because they have the circus or some damn thing in town. There's a ricochet shot. So we play Tuesday night, and if we had lost in Baltimore on a Tuesday night. We would have played Saturday night back in Philly. Best two out of three, right? Right. But so we go play this Tuesday night game. My mom and dad from Vancouver come down, fly down for the game. The Govets coming the, down. Mom and dad come down, and mom and dad have been to a couple of NLL games, but never a championship game. Uh huh. And I had the great kind of good fortune in a five-year career to play in four championship games and happen to win three of them. Um, technically, I guess I played in five because there were two championship games in 98, but whatever. Right. So we win on a Tuesday night. And I, previous championships, somebody takes care of the cup all night. Of course. You got to make sure that it gets to one place to the next and it's at the party. And, it, you know, so I got that job as a rookie the year we With won. your knee? No, no, this is a rookie. It was okay, nine, okay, in 94, okay, okay. I got that okay. job. And so in 98, when we win it again, I've still kind of kept that job that I was the keeper of the cup. That's kind of sick. Slept I mean, that's a badge it, of honor. Yeah, so I'm the guy that, like, holds on to it, right? Makes sure that it gets to where it needs to go. Of course. The National Cross League Cup at the time, many people have seen it the first year and then beyond until we replaced it with the current NLL Cup. 
Um, it was there was the North American Cup in the first year. It was a tall, skinny kind of. They used to say it was the Stanley Cup on Slim Fast. It was like super <laughs> narrow. The cup on top, so it wasn't wasn't like Stanley Cup that's like robust. It yeah. was like this super narrow cup. So anyway, this the NLL Cup. If you go look at Ricky Bobby winning the championship in a lot of all the races he was in, they used one cup in the movie. It was exactly the same cup as the NLL Cup. Really, that's a true story. Go look it up when you're done. You'll so see. Ricky Bobby's holding up the the and the year one NLL Cup. Yeah. So it lasted for like 15, 17 years until re- literally we just got a new one. A lot of liquids been drank out of that original. Tons. Cup. And the thing is, they spray paint it. Right. That's healthy with a lead based paint. Back I'm in the sure day. it was lead based, which led to a lot of you know in, in intro gastrotechnical anyway that's the good term that but you nailed it right there (laughs) well so i'm really curious i'm I'm trying to figure out the timeline you play five years so you play in that game one the doctor prompt like you have to promise that you retire you play in that game two so i played i started in 94 Uh uh-huh summer of 93 i graduated from college correct in, in may I'm living in Northern Virginia with my then girlfriend, now wife, and I start I, Northern Virginia. I I wanted to play in for the Wings. I'd uh-huh. gone to a couple games while I was in college, and it was just this amazing atmosphere in the spectrum. Just like amazing atmosphere in the spectrum. It was so cool, and they won a lot, and they had a bunch of Canadian guys, Gary and Paul, obviously, you know, which I had known kind of growing up against them in Victoria, and we kind of had this long history of, right. of competing. We're the same age. Um, Tom Erchek, who wasn't there yet but was coming. Dallas Elliott, who was my goalie. Boy, legend. You're dropping some up. legends of the game Yeah, right but, now. like, he and I, he was a couple years older than I was, but we played in Burnaby Minor Lacrosse. So uh-huh. grew up kind of playing Burnaby. He played Vancouver East, and then we played in the same junior team for a number of years. Uh, we didn't win anything in junior because basically we were going up against the gates all the time. Yeah. So and then this Coquitlam team that was kind of always a thorn in our side. So there was kind of three teams we were pretty good, top three teams, but we were always number three. Uh-huh. So anyway, after then I, Coquitlam and Victoria, Coquitlam Victoria, or it was called Esquimalt Victoria, uh-huh. but um, the Esquimalt Legion was the name of that team. It was Gary and Paul and a number of other Victoria guys. That, you know, Freddie Jenner. Yep. Teddy's brother yeah, was yeah, on, yeah. all those guys. So. Um, Tons and tons of, of just quality guys who ended up going on to play um, for the vaunted Victoria Shamrocks. And so long story short, 94, 98, I play in the National Cross League for the Philadelphia Wings. You know, I went through the whole tryout process. Tryouts back then were an interesting dynamic. It was two weekends, uh-huh. two sessions per weekend. So you played Saturday, you played Sunday, came back the next weekend, Saturday, Sunday, picked the team. So like, you don't have a whole lot of opportunity. And basically, Tony Resch, who was the head coach, who's a legendary coach, oh, right? Yeah. Tony Resch, roll the ball out, and you scrimmage pretty much all four sessions. It wasn't so a lot just, of teaching. It wasn't a lot of showing guys how I to play. I would have been screwed. I don't know, man. I think you actually would have been good in that scenario because you could just, you just play. Uh-huh. And it wasn't overly technical, Mm-hmm. Now it's super technical. The game is super technical now in comparison to the track meet that we used to call that game. And it was literally you had four sessions to make a team. So you play, right? And 
Um, I actually think you would have done well. I mean, don't you think in a open, roll the ball out, I'm just going to go play lacrosse, I don't have to think about what I'm doing, play the game, you would have done better? Uh, if, if it was settled fives, absolutely not. I, I needed Greg Downing holding my hand, talking to me about what open is, because as you know, we've, we've kind of discussed coming from the Notre Dame defensive system, it was play your guy. Don't worry about the pick. So I was set up to just get blindsided. I think it would have been better for transition. And I think it would have better in certain situations like that. So what you're saying is no <laughs> national across league team should ever draft a Notre Dame player. No, um, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it would take a special talent and someone who's much smarter than me where For, it can click. So if John Arlotta listens to this, right, I should or, or Jerry Byrne and some of my friends that might listen to this, I'm kidding about the Notre Dame thing. <laughs> the tough part was I was 75s across the board. I didn't excel particularly at defense. I didn't excel particularly at offense. So when I came in, I was just bad enough to not even get a sniff at offense, and I was just bad enough to not truly understand the defense. But you could just shoot the shit out of the ball in transition. Kind of. The but step down, in transition, Nicosello split to a – like that was – that was – a devastating for defenses well the nice thing was is is it was perfect for college and then when you get to pros and they figure you out it, you know when you when you get to be a one-trick pony because I faced off in college too and I was a right. good face-off guy in college because you run into Trevor Baptiste once a year right <clears throat> and he slaps you around and then you run into him in the playoffs and in between that there's a bunch of you know, to toot my own horn, lesser athletic Nick Ocello guys who were just thrown out there on face-off because face-off wasn't a highly technical position. You get to the pros, face-off is a highly technical position. Okay, so I'm not a good face-off guy. You get to the pros, these transition guys, they already know my right-to-right -right split. I sure as shit didn't develop my left hand. So I, I excelled I excelled in college. They didn't work on that with the farmers? No. Oh, my God, the farmers. <laughs> Showing up thinking that I was good in college and my head was spinning. Um no, I think the game is, is becoming more and more specialized where you have very good technically sound guys who can communicate on defense where I could just kind of coast, of uh, coast off athleticism in college and I could coast off of face-offs from college and I could coast off a lot of that. And then when it came down to really having the game click and slow down, that was a five-year process where the only experience I got was in training camp. And then it was play a game if you made the roster, wait four weeks, forget everything you learned about in that game, play another game, and just kind of blow it. Are you talking about the NLL? You're talking about PLL as well? NLL, 99% NLL with that. PLL, it's just kind of like you need to just be better than everybody else, and whatever yeah. you excelled in in college can probably translate. Or have a lot of followers on social media. Or have, a, or have clout. Sorry. One of the two. <laughs> Couldn't resist. So, <laughs> I, the, I, don't, I will never disagree with that. So thing. the point of – what I'm trying to make in the mill back yeah. in the day. When you just showed up and had two times a week. You could literally show up and play. And so I only make the Philadelphia wings because I have a little more savvy than 10 other guys that are trying out because I'm a box player. Right. Right. And I played box growing up. How many was, Americans were at that tryout? Well, it was a, there was a rule back then that you can only have five Canadians. 
Really? You only have five guys that were Canadian. That we you... need to bring back that rule right now. You like that rule? Yeah, I love that rule. That's my favorite <laughs> rule of all time. And I'll tell the Canadians that they need to get deported. So the interesting thing about that is the Buffalo team. So this is interesting because it changed the dynamic and literally sets the trajectory of a lot of teams in the National Lacrosse League. Today, even today, it's, it's set the trajectory of those teams. So, for instance, Buffalo ha- was allowed to have all indigenous players. Not all indigenous. They were allowed to have a number of indigenous players that did not count against their five Canadians. Really? Because the indigenous players are allowed to cross the border relatively easily uh-huh. at the time, of course, um, with their Haudenosaunee passport, right? Yeah. And they were crossing the border was simple. So Darius and Rich Kilgore lived in Tuscarora, which is on the U.S. side of the border. Uh-huh. They were able to play for Buffalo because it was their hometown, essentially. But they played in St. Catharines, right, which is super close uh-huh. from a Canadian-American perspective, like 30 minutes, tops, it, even with the border at the time, right? This is, we're talking about the early 90s where sailing through the border was relatively easy, right? especially for the indigenous guys who, who kind of had the pass to go back and forth, right? So Buffalo had this, this large contingent of indigenous players because they were a lot of Canadian guys, Six Nations players, that didn't have to have a green card. Or, sorry, not a green card, but a P1 visa. Yeah, right? yeah. So the, the rule was in place so that the league didn't have to get more than five P1 visas So per team. So if you went around that P1 visa using native yeah. players, what yes. an advantage. They had a huge advantage. And then they started bringing in a couple other guys, like Derek Keenan, who's current uh, GM in Saskatchewan, right? Yeah. He was a superstar. And he played on that team. He ended up playing for a short time on the Hamilton team as well, which we'll get into in a second. But uh, Kevin Alexander, one of the greatest players of all time in in box lacrosse, a guy that no one's ever heard of here in the U.S. Uh Kevin Alexander was one of the greatest, not only the greatest box players, but one of the greatest international players of all time. Um, Was amazing. And, you know, probably the first African-American player to play in the mill. Uh-huh. Next to Ricky Sewell, who you've probably heard about, but but at the end of the day, Kevin Alexander, amazing player. Um, great story about Kevin Alexander. Quickly, he was a postman in Victoria. I think this is how the story goes. He, he, he delivered the mail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And he skipped out on work one day, called in sick, and then goes to a national tournament and scores like five or six goals. And it's in the paper. Oh. <laughs> Kevin Alexander scores five goals it's in the newspaper. Right. He's, he had called in sick. He lost his job. No way. Yeah. So the, the tales of old his you know, boss didn't understand. Yeah. work type stuff. Boss wasn't too impressed with wasn't the five impressed goals at all. So Rochester, right, was a group of guys that were, you know, Western New York, upstate guys. There were a couple Canadians, three, four, five Canadians. Dwayne Jacobs, who was an indigenous guy, and – uh, Randy Mearns, but Tim Sudan, who everybody knows as a coach, Reggie Thorpe, who was a, a, a great player for Syracuse. But, you know, a lot of Canadian goaltenders kind of mixed it here and there. But for the most part, the rest of the teams were Boston, New York, Philly, Baltimore, uh-huh. right? And then Buffalo, Rochester. Much so. further south of the border. Well, where what happened was these guys, it, it tended to centralize in Boston guys – 
And so it was, it was very provincial. So Boston guys played on the Boston team. You know, Philly guys played on the Philly team. Baltimore, New York, Baltimore, right? or New York, New York. Yeah. Well, the Baltimore thing was a little weird because you had some Baltimore guys on the Philly team, like Brian Volker, right? Coach at, at Drexel. Right. Um, t- tons of guys like that. Andy Towers, right? Jimmy Rogers, Scott Gabrielson, current color guy for the Wings, mm. right? He was a Philly guy, but he went to Vermont, right? And and so Jimmy Rogers lived in he wor- lived and worked in the city, and he would commute down for games. I lived in Washington D.C., Northern Virginia. I would drive up for practices on Thursday nights, or sorry, Wednesday nights, and I would was that meet, a two-hour drive just it's give or take like up. three hours. And practice started at nine, but like in the winter, on a crappy winter day, and I'm driving up ninety-five to get to you know, a practice and you did it every week, you I'd have to leave work at like four thirty to get to a nine o'clock practice, practice for two hours, practice ends at eleven, and then you drive home. I would get in around two, three in the morning. And then I have to get up work work Thursday, Friday, and then we drove up for games on Saturday. You didn't practice the night before games like we do now. So there there was some a lot of interesting dynamics, but the the other dynamic was you flew on the day of the game. Wow. So if we were playing in Buffalo, we got on like a 10 o'clock flight, flew to Buffalo. It was only an hour flight, an hour and a half flight, right? Flew out of Baltimore, flew out of wherever you lived, and you'd go up there. It was an hour, and then you'd spend all day hanging out, waiting for the game, play the game, get up early, go home. Oh, they didn't send you on the red eye back? No. (laughs) Not a lot of red eyes, like short flights like that, but... Like now, so when you move west of the Mississippi to Colorado, that changed the whole dynamic of practice. Uh huh. Everybody used to practice on Wednesday nights, right? Midweek, because everybody lived there in the place that they played. Mm-hmm. So the dynamic started to change as more Canadians come into the league and you start to. When did that rule change from the five Canadians to, I'm assuming there was just like, a, all right, let's get rid of that and do whatever the hell you want? It started so. There's a pivotal transition the summer of 1997. Without going into that story, because it's a very long story, but the league changes from the dynamic of single entity ownership with Russ and Chris Fritz owning all the teams in the league mm-hmm. and getting all of the immigration and all of those to the divestiture of their ownership interest into every team is owned by another entity. So the current structure of what, what we are today and then similar structures to like the NHL or the NFL, the franchise kind of structure. So at 1998, the season, 1998 season, was when it was first implemented. So when I said there was two changes, the spandex, yep, right, and the best two out of three, there was, right, the third was that's when they stopped requiring the number of players. So you were responsible. The teams were now responsible for their own immigration. I feel like that that number three is the biggest change of Huge the two. Change. But you started off with the spandex, so I know where your mind's at. What's what's important? Yeah, well, um, but the the biggest thing that happens that off season is there's the implementation of a team in Hamilton, Ontario. So Hamilton, Ontario starts as a new team, quote unquote, an expansion team. And from that expansion team, they were able to p- kind of pick up a number of players for the Hamilton Raiders, or sorry, the Ontario Raiders. Uh-huh. They were able to pick up a number of players that probably wouldn't have been available to them even two years before. Jimmy Veltman, one of the greatest players of all time, who's now the GM in New York, um, he goes on a mission 
to Africa. So he played on the Buffalo Bandits. Him, John Tavares, Troy Cordingly, Darius Kilgore, Rich Kilgore, the great team dynasty in Buffalo. And Jimmy Veltman decides he's going to go, right, magnanimously he's going to go on a mission and help people in Africa. And what an amazing human to do that. So he goes there for two years, so he leaves the Buffalo Bandits. The rule basically was like, well, if you didn't play for a year, you were a free agent. So he signs in Hamilton. They don't keep his In rights. Africa, he signs in Hamilton? Well, he was came back like, from he, Africa. As he's getting ready to come back. And he comes back, back to play, and, and he plays for the Hamilton Raiders, or the, the Ontario Raiders. Do you know where in Africa he went, just out of curiosity? I honestly have no idea. Good question for you to ask him. I was going to say, I need to get him on and ask about you this whole. You should. Jimmy Veltman, he'll tell you all sorts of stories. But the stories of the Buffalo team, the Buffalo team was really, really good. You know, uh, dynasty yeah. type team. But then they start to split. And then guys like Dan Stroop, Chris Gill, Russ Hurd, Pat Coyle, <laughs> Colin Doyle, all of these guys go start to play. Sean Williams, um, Kimbo Squire, Bob Watson, the goaltender, like all these guys sign up to play for the Ontario Raiders, right? So the teams in Buff, Rochester. That they were just drawn from, that had to decimate the Buffalo-Rochester rosters. Yes. So they pulled those guys over. Most of the Rochester guys stayed, and Rochester was really good at the time. So, you know, Ontario Raiders come in, right? And they lose, and like they they won like the last five or six games. They don't they don't get in the playoffs. They kind of don't. They sneak out of the playoffs. They were they weren't good enough to make the playoffs, but they were good enough. If they had gotten in the playoffs, they win the championship. I almost guarantee it. Gary Gate had left during this whole transition from um, the mill to the NLL. He was on the Wings, left the Wings to go play for the Baltimore Thunder for 1998, for the first year of the National Lacrosse League, Baltimore Thunder. So he takes his team to the final. The Wings go to the final. I'm in the final. He's in the final. He, we, all, we played together. We were roommates for four years. Uh-huh. So you got dirt on him, huh? Well, I don't know about that. But Paul Gates, Paul Gates stays uh, for two years. He goes to Rochester because that was closer to his, to his home up in Syracuse. He was right. living up in Syracuse. They started, actually, the Syracuse Smash. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Gate was behind that that's in 97. So in 98, game. there was a Syracuse smash. It looked like uh, uh, one of the, the – you should look up the, the logo of the Syracuse smash. It was kind of like um, the the uh, Simpsons where, where the, the cool guy, they made a cool logo guy and tried to bring in a dog. Oh, God. I'm looking at it right now. That's brutal. The yeah. the sunglasses, the backwards hat, like yeah. it's like a bad, uh, it's like a bad energy drink from yes. the '90s. Exactly. Um, so all this is going on, and right, the wings. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> Such a bad logo. It's awful. <laughs> oh Rumor God. has it Steve Scarmazino, but you know that's we'll see. Um, but anyway, all this stuff happens and. The wings and the thunder make it into the final. I jam up my knee, so I can't, um, I can't work out. That's the that's your answer to your question. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say a couple of roundabout ways, but yeah, you brought it back. Brought it at back. the end. I can't believe that he made you retire 
knowing it must have been bad where it was like, hey, promise me that you'll get surgery as soon as the season's over versus promise me you're just never going to play again. That happens today is technology, you know, has it come far enough to where that would have been potentially on the table? It's one of those things that probably in answer to your question, but I also had this, uh, it didn't make a lot of money at the time. Like I was making like 700 bucks a game. Right. Right. Which wasn't a lot of money. It was like $7,000 for the whole season. Right. And, you know, I loved it. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And we were playing in this game and it was like, I just wanted to finish the game. So I just said, sure. Um, could I have come back and played another year? Probably. And so I, this knee thing happens, right? And I, I'm troubled. Finish the game. Right. We win championship. So retiring. And I started a little late than everybody else because I didn't go to college until I was 21 years old. Right, right. So I'm not done until I'm like 24, 25. I didn't come into the National Cross League until I was 26. So you're a 26-year-old rookie at training camp. Yeah. And I – That's an advantage. Yes. Um, but I played until I was 31. Right. So – you know, career, family. What was time. your you, so you mentioned getting back to like you know and having to wake up for work? What was your work in D.C.? I had so many jobs right out of college. Just odd job. No, it was weird. Or, I was like a I was a, a mortgage um, processor, right, for a while. Because the funny thing is, you get a degree. I got a degree in economics, right, and so in order to stay for a year on your visa the visa was this practical training visa and so you had to get a job in your field so mortgage processing the mortgage business because it was finance was in my field it had nothing to do with what i studied of course not nothing but i got to stay and mainly i got to stay so i could play and then i moved into i moved from there to um was selling like microsoft training something for a while and I did that while I was playing um, and then when I hurt my knee and I got it scoped I was working in a in a golf club and honestly I was working in the in the uh, bag room you were that was my first job was bag bitch yeah I was I'd worked and I pick in the range and do this like I was 27 bit. 28 years old and I'm like I want to work in the golf business I think I was making six bucks an hour and I was playing lacrosse. Did you get the tips from cleaning the oh, clubs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's yeah. when I made the most money in my life. Scrubbing wrenches, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. How'd you hit them? Oh, buffing like, wrenches. Shit? Yeah. Oh, that's that's incredible, yeah, that's Mr. Watson. Yeah. yeah. And you're buffing wrenches, right? Hundred so percent. Did that pulling carts out of the barn, sneaking and doing the booze all. from the carts. So I get a job. I was in D.C. Right. I'm working at Westwood Country Club at the time. I get a job in, working for a company called Golf South selling tournaments, selling golf tournaments. This is how I become a GM in the National Cross League. You're going to think it's crazy. I do not think anything's crazy these days. I go, I'm in um, in Northern Virginia, and I'm scrubbing wrenches, doing all that crap. And there's a job online or something for a tournament, golf tournament salesperson for a company called Golf South. And it's a place called Princeton Meadows. It was up in, in Princeton, New Jersey. Right. Princeton, New Jersey was closer for me to Philly 
right, than I was. And I could stop doing this two-hour drive, two-and-a-half-hour drive, yeah, or get out of northern Virginia. Winter. I mean, I don't know anybody that is on the Beltway at any point in time around the D.C. Beltway. I didn't want to be on the D.C. Beltway anymore. Like, it was just a gong show. So my wife and I decide um, we didn't have kids. We're going to move up to Princeton, New Jersey. I'm going to take this job. And I hit it off with the GM of the golf club. And I went to work in the golf business selling tournaments. Uh, about nine months into my job there, the GM leaves and goes to open a golf course at LSU. And they made me the GM. So I become the GM of a golf course. And I learned that job for three, four years while I did it. And was selling tournaments and when you say you learned that job like what what actually were you learning was it like the management side of things yeah i mean you learn how to manage people you learn how to manage budgets you learn how to read p l's um you know you kind of understand and learn what the what business is how to drive you know consumers and golfers and how to do tournaments and you know, how to keep your expenses down and how to manage people and how to manage customers. And uh, the golf business was really strong, and you probably know this from your experience, but it was a really strong opportunity to learn how to serve, like customer service. Oh, yeah. Right? And what, understanding what the difference between the front of the house and the back of the house, right? 100%. So as you progress, it's got food and beverage, right? It's got merchandise, and it's got ticket sales, which is really golf rounds. Right. So as I finished my career in that day, winning a championship, I'm in the golf business. I'm, you know, my, my wife's ready to have our, our first child in 98, just right. Had had her in, in May of 98. She's ready to do that. I'm kind of like ready for like what's next, what's different. After four years, you said five, five, five years being in the, the GM? National Lacrosse right. League, and then I, oh, I'm three or four or, years of GM, and right, right, and so that was all good and cool, and I decide at that point I'm going to retire, and it was at that point that Mike French, who was the GM of the Wings, says, you know what. I'm missing things because I'm not really paying attention. I got a real job. He was working for PricewaterhouseCoopers. He was in, he was busy, and he goes, "I need somebody to be the GM." And so I, they asked me because I had this sports marketing experience in the golf business, uh-huh. and I said, "Sure." And like I literally took the job for eighteen thousand bucks a year. Um, it was a it was a year round job, but theoretically it, it was supposed to be part time. Right. I stayed in the golf business, and then I was working this part time job for the National Cross League. But it was really my passion. Um, and so, yeah. Was that tough to balance? I mean, I when you said you took the job for the NLL, I figured that would have been like I'm leaving golf and I'm going to go be the GM for this new, you know, well not new, but this different team no see so my job was to work mainly on team operations as a gm right so my focus was making sure that we had a winning team and wings were good i mean they were good one in 98 right um and so my job was to keep competitive like keep the competitive balance and make sure that we were good and and uh, love that but but it was it was an it was a part-time job so I was supposed to be doing this at nights and you know and on weekends when we played. Think about the golf business though in the Northeast. Summer heavy golf, right? Yeah. That's all. It was sixty hours a week on 
golf course operations. Yep. And then it was like another 10 hours a week on the wings, right? Okay. So that was summer. And then there's like, you know, the draft you have to do and you have to do meetings and you have to do this and that. And so I, I was melting it together, which was fine. And then as you get closer to the fall and you got to do training camps, you got to do this and that, golf begins to wane as it gets in the colder, northeast, right? As it gets as, colder, there's yeah. less golfers, so there's less activity. So it was easier for me to kind of balance the, okay, that 60 hours a week of the golf course is coming down to, you know, a more normal 40 hours. I'm able to kind of go up to 25, 30 hours a week on, on lacrosse. April must have been a shit show. Well, what really became difficult is, is in the golf business, when, you, when it gets cold, you lay everybody off, right? Everybody goes away. Kids yeah. go back to school. Seasonal. They go seasonal, work at the mountains. Right? So who do you think works in the shop when you lay everybody off? The GM. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be management. Yes. They're not going to lay themselves off. Exactly. So management. So I'm literally working. You think it goes down. It's 50, 60 hours a week in the wintertime. And it's not as, as let's, in, let's say, intense in the winter, but you still got to be there. Yeah. And so, and then all of a sudden, like every once in a while, New Jersey, you know, you get that 40 or 50 degree day and everybody comes to play golf that day. Yep. Right. Um, so I was just, it was just what I was doing. You still kind of handcuffed to that. Just given the, you got to be there. Someone randomly walks in to buy a shirt yeah, or, exactly. you know, pops in. Yeah. Or members come in to, you know, get lunch or yeah. whatever. And you just had to be there. So the, that's so it started to become a lot. I have my first child, right? Family growing. My wife's a teacher, um, you know, and so I have this opportunity to become the president and GM of the Washington team. So it was kind of after a year where we lost. I talked to Gary Gate. Gary's in Baltimore, right? Now keep in mind, you. I don't know if you know this or not. But the Baltimore Thunder became the Pittsburgh Crossfire, became the Washington Power, became the Colorado Mammoth. I didn't know that the I didn't know about the stop in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I knew about the other three. So at the end of the Pittsburgh year and the end of the wing season, Gary and I we talked all the time. We're good friends, right? I'm like, so what do we do now? He goes, I don't know, I'm thinking about moving this team. The owner doesn't want to do it. I'm buying to buy this team. And, you know, where where should we play? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And so we, the conversation starts to go back and forth. He goes, I got a guy I think that will buy the team. And so he's going to give you a part of the team. You can own a bit of it. And I was, I'm like, okay, fine. He goes, he wants to move it to Washington, D.C., which is where he was from. This owner was Ted Leonsis' attorney. So we moved the team to Washington, D.C. They bring me on board. I started on Halloween. That was my first day. <laughs> Start day, October 31st. Start day, October 31st. We played our first game on December 31st, December 30th. Oh, that's a quick turnaround. We launched the team in two months. That's a very quick turnaround. Yeah, that's why we didn't sell any tickets. But whatever. Bottom line is the team was pretty good. But we were moving this, this Pittsburgh Crossfire team, which was – Pretty okay, good team. Had Gary and Paul Gate. That right? helps. So it's a good start. Helps. Moved to Washington, D.C., and then we brought in a few Canadians. We brought in some guys. We ended up going to the semifinals and played Toronto in the semifinals two years in a row um, and lost in overtime both years. 
to an unbelievable Toronto Rock team that goes on to win the, win in the championships. Both years. Both years. Oh, that was. But so then grimy. the th- you know in the third year it's like we don't have any money. Second year in Washington we don't have any money and long story short not very capitalized. The owner of the team is going out and trying to raise money by kind of valuing the team at like five million bucks. So just as an FYI, two this team tr- transacted in 1999. He bought the team for $250,000. He paid $60,000 in cash and a $190,000 note right. to the former owner. When he sold the team to Stan Kroenke for a million dollars, $950,000, two years later, we paid everything off, paid it all back, and he paid off that $190,000 note, took his $60,000 out, and he Right, we he bought that team for two fifty. Two years later, we sold it for a million bucks. Don't ask me how. I was gonna say well, who who was on the right, who was well, on the buy side of that valuation. Well, a lot of people from Cronky Sports, but they also looked at it at the same time. You probably remember this as a Colorado kid when they brought in the Colorado Crush. Oh yeah, the, the John. L- team, I remember John those Elway, commercials. They right? yeah. We started the same year, and it was a question of whether they were going to do one or the other. They were going to do lacrosse or they were going to do football. And they they said, screw it. Let's do both. And they did both. The Mammoth paid back that million-dollar investment midway through year two. Really? Yeah. That's not, Was it immediate success? Was Denver immediate just success. the perfect location? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I could go into a lot of reasons why I think it happened, but it wasn't one reason. What was the what was the turnaround time from the time the team was bought? So you had two months to launch a team in Washington. I'm assuming the plan with Denver went a lot better and gave you more of a runway. A little bit more. We launched the team June the 6th. What year was this 2002. Oh, two. Got it. How old were you? Five? Uh, no, I was born in 93, so I was nine. Nine years old. And boy, was I the biggest little mammoth bastard fan you ever it. met in your life. I love it. Because I, I do remember it was as soon as the mammoth launched, it became every Christmas, every birthday, every friend's birthday. It yeah. was the thing to do, and we were head over heels, fully in love with, with box lacrosse. To the point where that became our heroes more than college and more than outdoor, more than any other thing. Well, the interesting thing is Colorado always had this robust college, or sorry, not college, but robust high school lacrosse pocket, Mm -hmm. right? Kent, Denver, Colorado Academy, Creek, you know. Wheat Ridge. Yeah, well, yeah. and (laughs) Even though the program folded, RIP. So it had this robust kind of pocket of lacrosse and part of it had to do with Vail, right? The Vail tournament yep. where all these guys came out to Vail and played and some of them never went home. It's a big thing with DU. A lot of these guys go play at DU and they never, never leave, leave Colorado. Well, there's the other thing is there was a team called, there was a pro league in, it was outdoor pro league in, I want to say the eighties that started briefly may or may not have heard of these guys called the Denver rifles. You ever uh, heard of the Denver Rifles? I have not heard of the Denver Rifles. Never even. So it's really interesting. So the reason why a guy like Peter Schaefer, Lance Savage, um, Dan Pratt, 
Sam, all these guys, Billy Hall, all these yeah. guys end up in Denver, right? That are lacrosse guys, Division One lacrosse guys. There's this team called the Denver Rifles. They got recruited to come out and play on this pro team. And it right. lasted, I want to say, I don't know the whole story. Peter Schaefer is another great um, interview you should get and talk about the Denver Rifles because it's a funny story. Peter's a NFL agent. Yeah. And he's got his own stories in his own right. He kind of cut his teeth. Uh, as Barry Sanders' uh, agent, really, right? So that's how he kind of that's a launches himself in the business, yeah. right? Yeah. Hey, how so, are you? So um, he he does a really he's, he's got a bunch of players in the National Football League right now and, and does an amazing job. But so he starts as a as a lacrosse player coming to Denver, and that's how he starts. He came out as a Denver Rifle, and they all stayed. I don't right? blame them. They all stayed. And and so this robust pocket of lacrosse in Denver, a bunch of people wanted a team in Denver. They wanted something. Pro lacrosse was kind of destined to work in Denver because of this pocket. And when we went to Denver, which was different than, let's say, going to Washington, D.C. or Baltimore or some of these other cities, people in Denver didn't care if it was outdoor or indoor. They didn't care. Right. Gary Gate was on the team. They wanted to go watch Gary Gate. And Cronky Sports, married with the National Lacrosse League and Box Lacrosse, brought together a lot of really cool um, visionary people that helped launch that program, um, launch the, the, the mammoth, right, with great game entertainment, which was always the best. Kyle Keefe launched that group. Brian Kitts launched the sponsorship Tom Filan did an amazing job on sponsorship, and uh, Brian Kitts was marketing. Tom Filan did sponsorship, and 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 all these other things. And then Jeff Plush was a, a good guy, and and helped me kind of navigate the Cronky Sports landscape. And amazingly enough, right, game one, sixteen thousand people. The line is two miles down the road at the Conoco station, you know where the Conoco yep. station. Oh yeah. L- was it actually, did it get I'm all the way out lying. there? I got all the way down to the Conoco station. No way. Because they didn't open enough ticket windows because they just didn't anticipate the walk up. Oh my goodness. I will never forget walking. So Tom Filand, who works, worked at Cronky sports, doesn't work there anymore. Walks up to me, goes, can we hold the start time of the game? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, what happened? Like, why? And I'm like, you know, I mean, there's no TV. He goes, well, there's a line about half a mile long outside trying to get in. Can we hold the game? So I go up to Les Bartley. Les Bartley is the – and keep in mind, he's the GM head coach of the Toronto Rock. He's just the head coach at the time. Johnny Meridian was the GM. He comes up to me, or I go up to him, and I say, can we hold the start of the game? But keeping in mind that – this is the same team that knocked us out of the playoffs. Did you have a little two year? Well, we had a, little, a bit of a uh, up yours, yeah, I mean, kind of. Yeah, and so you know, you got to go over and say, "Hey, can you help?" And he was the most gracious. Like we had a rivalry, yeah, because they had beaten us. Like I, it's all, I, I think rivalries are funny. I don't know how you feel about rivalries, but rivalries are always stronger on the team that loses. Infinity percent, right? In a hundred, I don't think anybody would disagree. So some with that. people say they have a rivalry with somebody else. But the winner doesn't think there's a rivalry. Yeah, it's the little brother. It's wow. Bob, yeah. We hate the Calgary Roughnecks. Why? Because they beat you all the time, right? Hate the Whip Snakes. Why? Yeah, you the Whip Snakes yeah. don't care. Yeah, 
hate, I no hate rivalry the rush. when I was on when I was playing for Colorado. I was like, God, I hate these rush guys. Why? Because they embarrassed me in front of a huge crowd. Yeah, but they don't care. No, they could. It's not a rivalry they don't know for anybody, them. No, they did not know who I was, and I hated them with a passion. Yeah, and that makes it ten times more insulting. I'm like, Hey, screw you guys, and they're like, Who are you? Getting who are you'd? Yeah, is the worst thing ever. Have you ever got to Google me? No, I, I think that's me. kind of a loser move to say Google. Early me. on, it was good. Okay, that's right? probably a little bit early too on. It, Google me was good, but now it's overused. Right? I I did the who are you to very well known, prominent guys. Like I remember, because <laughs> like well, you have to go kind of in the. I, I said that to Mark Matthews when we were playing Sask. Like, because I slayed to him. I split my head open i had to get like three stitches after the game and he goes bet that hurt and i was like who are you and he just looked at me like and kind of started laughing i'm like that got a bigger reaction than like any f you or anything would have gone so i used the who are you like almost to try and get the very well-known players off their game i did a who are you to terry sanderson no <laughs> how do you react so set the stage i'm the gm of the wings uh-huh and I'm on the bench. So I'm op opening and closing <laughs> a door, yeah. right? Right. Um, just because, like, I just retired. I couldn't sit upstairs. I quickly figured out that sitting upstairs is a way better experience for me. Uh-huh. Um, but, like, I, I opened the door. And Terry Sanderson was a new coach in the league for, for the Albany Attack was the name of the team. Um, and he there all there was between the two of us was glass. Like plexiglass. Yeah. So he's opening the door here as an assistant coach. I'm opening the door here. Little melee on the floor. Something happens, whatever. And chirping. Players chirping back and forth. And he starts giving it to me. Now, my career in the National Lacrosse League included a number of pugilistic activities. I fought a couple times. Of course. I thought I was a relative tough guy. Yeah. Right? Now, I truly didn't know who this guy was, this heavy bearded man next to me that was only 5'9". Right. I didn't know who he was. I I was a Western Canadian guy. He is a legend of Ontario lacrosse. Everybody knows who Terry Sanderson is. I didn't because I <laughs> he'd never been in the National Lacrosse League before. I didn't play a whole lot of man cups or minto cups because I wasn't very good, uh -huh. right? So I don't know who this guy is. He's chirping me. I'm chirping him. And he's, like, like giving it to me. So we're leaning around the plexiglass. And I go, who are you? <laughs> who are you? And he got, like, pissed Beat red. that I said that. And he's like, so as I walk away a few years, well, couple minutes and a few months later and figure out who this guy is and the stories of who terry sanderson is <laughs> i realized that he had his right hand cocked ready to go and i have my left hand and i'm like i'm not doing any damage with this no. <laughs> yeah, and he's got thor's hammer on. yeah ready to load up and dummy me right so anyway i i who are you to terry sanderson unbelievable yeah so um sorry so so to go back uh, there's a, a, a line a half mile out of, uh, of Pepsi Center, now Ball Arena. You go and ask the Toronto GM, do you mind if we delay it a little bit? As a rival, you said he responded graciously. Massively gracious. And he's like, anything we can do 
to help grow the National Cross League. This is awesome. If you can, you know, if that, yeah. So we that do- has to be like the best pro. Hey, can we delay the start game? What? Why? Because there's a line of fans to the gas station that's a half mile away. It's the greatest thing I'd ever heard. Now, keeping in mind, right? I, I played in the Philadelphia Spectrum uh-huh. when it was full, sixteen thousand people, full buildings, craziness. Wells Fargo Center that they currently play in, full to the rafters. The Buffalo Auditorium, right? That same building they play in now was full, right? Like I played in full, full buildings. I went to Washington, D.C. and couldn't figure out how to crack that nut. Now, retrospect, looking back, it's hard to do when you don't have any money to advertise and you don't have, right? And you're trying, you're on a shoestring budget and it was, it was just tough. Yeah. And so we played in, we played in the, it was funny because the Philadelphia Wings just this past weekend played two back-to-back games. They played Saturday night and they played Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. Yeah. That's the first time that that has ever happened in the National Lacrosse League since December 30th and December 31st of 2000. With the Washington? Washington Power. That was our first game back-to-back at noon noon on on the 30th and then noon on New Year's Eve. (laughs) Quick turnaround. Two noon games back to back. It was Toronto and it was Buffalo. In Washington? In Washington. Makes it a little better. It was called the MCI Center at the time. That should have probably given us kind of a a hint as to what our future would hold. MCI, yeah, anyway. Um, So the MCI Center now, I think it's Verizon Center now, um, in Washington, D.C. It was right downtown. And then ultimately our next year, we moved out to what was the U.S. Air Arena. Uh-huh. Um, and it was the old Cap Center. Yeah. And it was mothballed. This building was mothballed and empty. Um, and they've torn it down since then and built movie theaters, which I'm sure they're doing well. Yeah, there. good good um, decision always. So the that building, old and mothballed, but it was ours. But it was kind of crazy a lot like Pachanga Arena. In fact, a lot like um, the Calgary um, Saddle Dome, the way it was shaped. Right. Just shaped that way. Not not exactly like that building, but it wasn't updated. It wasn't anything. So we played in there. We didn't do very well. And so, like, we moved from Washington where, you know, big challenges from Washington to Denver. And you're telling a guy, hey, can we hold the game? Because Toronto played in that very first game on 1230 in Washington, D.C. when the building was empty. And so Larry, you know, uh, um, you know their, their head coach was there. And he was, you know, we, we talked. And I said, you know, hey, can we do this? Les Bartley. And he says yes. So I go upstairs because now I'm not on the bench anymore as a GM. I go upstairs to this little room that they put my name on. It's at Steve Govett GM, and I'm like, I think I've made it. <laughs> and Look at me. I'm the big cheese. People start filing in from this thing. We hold the game. There's 16,200 people you got to watch game it. one. You just got to watch it, it swell up. And I'm, I'm not kidding you. As soon as they started playing the national anthem, I'm, I was bawling. I was crying. Just The Canadian or the American? Uh, either one, but it was a Canadian anthem. Like they play that first. Yeah. The lights went out. I'm a mess. I'm a puddle because I'm like, there are 16,000 people here. Yep. We did it. Yeah, we did it. We made it. Mom, get down here. So I go in that week 
kind of peacocking around 16,000 people. And the uh, president of Cronky Sports at the time, who played lacrosse at Middlebury College. Really? He was the managing editor of Sports Illustrated and the managing editor of Time Magazine. That Some would say that's good. Pretty impressive, right? Yeah. But also played lacrosse at Middlebury College. Love that. Previous to that. Love that. And Don Elliman, who, amazing man, and was my boss at the time in, in Cronky Sports. What was his title? He was, he was the CEO of Cronky Sports. Okay. Uh, and then David Ehrlich was his number two, um, who I've become really good friends with. But Don Elliman, amazing man. And uh, he was a lacrosse guy. That's partly why that deal got done, because he kind of pushed it through being a lacrosse guy. Right. And so he sits in this meeting, and I walk in. Like I said, I'm peacocking around. And he goes, well, what's up? And I go, 16,000 people. And he goes, any monkey can do it once. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, okay. And, you know, next game, we sold it out. We went on a streak of like six or eight sellouts in years two, three. We would flirt around the 18,000 number, which it was 18,007. And we'd flirt around 17. Eight nine hundred to eighteen thousand standing room only. Ever a true sellout? Uh, yeah, we sold out. We had standing room crowds. Oh, I, we had more than a sellout, like no tickets available. Do when do you say, "Hey, Nick, thanks for getting your twelve buddies." Thank you for ah, there buddies. we no. Thank so you, you, you I thank your once, parents for yeah. buying the ticket. <laughs> yeah, th- thank you, Stephen Linnea. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, so last question. I know we've been going uh, going pretty far here. But have you wait? Have you asked a question yet? No. This is this is best. This is the best <laughs> podcast we've ever done by a mile. Not that last week was killer, but this is what I want to know. You walk in once, sixteen thousand at the first game. You peacock a little bit. Any monkey can do it once. You go in and just kind of slap it on the table and say, "Yeah, what about twice? How you like me now? How you I like them apples?" I didn't because Whoa, I felt like on. your record stands on its own at that point. Um, and, and again, you know, you live on 15 years of a record in Colorado that was fairly robust. I would like to have won more championships, right? Um, one day we can get into the dynamic of how difficult it is to win outside of the horseshoe. Now, if you know what the horseshoe is, Toronto, Buffalo, Rochester, it's hard to win. And if you, if you follow the national cross league at all, 21 years out of the last 22 years, a team from Buffalo, Rochester, or Toronto have been in the finals. Like, think about that. It's, it's mind-blowing, right? Yeah. I it, It's mind-blowing and it's not. Knowing how East Coast-centric, it's like, you know. Ontario, easy yeah. to get to. Yeah. Like, understanding how difficult it is for players in the National Lacrosse League to get on a plane and fly to Colorado, or fly to San Diego, fly to Georgia, fly to Vancouver, and play at their peak, right, physical ability after flying for three hours and practicing late at night with the time change, right? There there were guys in Colorado that practice started at 8 or 9 o'clock because that's when you can get the practice facility after the youth soccer game that just went on. Yeah. Right? Practice starts at 9 o'clock. Well, on the East Coast, for Gary Gate, who just flew from Baltimore to come out and practice for the Colorado Mammoths. It's 11. Or Jay Jalbert. Or, no, 
Yeah, it's 11 o'clock, right? And so by the time they get out of practice, get a bite to eat, get something, their time, they're in bed by 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And you wonder why it's so difficult to kind of, A, recruit guys to play that don't turn around and go, hey, I got to go home. I got I to gotta live at home. Matt Vince, who we selected in the dispersal draft, right, before the trade for Matt Vince and John Grant, right, if I had to do it all over again, I love John Grant. I would have taken John Grant 100 times out of 100. But that being said, we had Matt Vince. The greatest goaltender probably in the history of, yeah. of the league was a member of the Mammoth, wouldn't sign with us because he's a teacher in St. Catharines. Right? And just needs to, I mean, can't needs his do life. It. He just yeah. can't swing it. And so you wonder all these years about – why certain teams win and certain teams don't win and why it's difficult to do. So you get a guy like a Dylan Ward who moves to your market. That's gold, man. Yeah. Right? Gold. If he wasn't such a jerk. I mean, I can't talk about him. He's on another team, but (laughs) his girlfriend isn't very nice to me either. Ooh, wife now, right? No, he's not married. Fiance? No. It's fiance, though. They're fiance, yeah. Yeah. He can still get out of it, though. Yeah. There's still time. I heard her... Italian cooking is subpar. Really? Yeah. I'm going to need to explore that. You further. should check it out. And I heard meatballs aren't very good. Uh, I'm going to, I might have to do a video series when I go back home. Top 10 meatballs. Top 10 meatballs. Uh, and coming in at dead last, the Ward household meatballs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just to talk. Ali Hulis' meatballs. <laughs> dead last. Beautiful. We'll get into that next week. But Steve, always appreciate you hopping on. What a roller coaster this was. This I, was phenomenal. You this really is, need to keep it on the rails, though. I, what, do you want me to cut you off when you're telling phenomenal stories? No, what am I going to do? do? You yeah. should do You should never do that. Yeah. You're saying you need to keep it in the rails, <laughs> and then if I kept it in the rails, you'd say, stop interrupting me and let me talk. The old catch-23 situation. Catch-22. <laughs> Beauty. Thank you, Mr. Steve Govett. This episode is brought to you by UC San Diego Health, ranked number one in San Diego by U.S. News and World Report. Last time I checked, being ranked number one by U.S. News and World Report is a good thing. They are the official healthcare provider of the San Diego Seals. Big fan of their work. That's UC San Diego Health. This episode is brought to you by UC San Diego Health, ranked number one in San Diego by U.S. News and World Report. Last time I checked, being ranked number one by U.S. News and World Report is a good thing. They are the official healthcare provider of the San Diego Seals. Big fan of their work. That's UC San Diego Health. recording button we are live this is the first time we're on camera too so we got to give the little apparently that helps sync everything up like i know what i'm doing (laughs) i'm already sweating are you sweating it's hot i mean it's cooling down you can feel it cooling down like i was in here before and it was a nightmare 
All right. Well, we uh, we did some hot yoga earlier. Ever done hot yoga? Do I look like I do yoga? I don't know. I don't know what you do on bye week. This is the first time I I've don't, talked to you coming off a of bye weekend. I don't do hot yoga. I've tried yoga a few times. You ever do P90X? Yes. You ever hear P90X? I've heard of P90X. That's P90- like a throwback at this point. Yeah, kind of. So there was like this whole process with P90X that you had like a bunch of different discs, right? Yep. Like, you know what a disc is, right? Yeah. Like a DVD? Oh, yeah. Like the whole like the box set. The box like set. The, the box set. Yeah. So the box set of the DVDs for P90X was um, a different workout for six days of the week. Like a different area of the body? Or no, just... no. It was a different type of workout. So one was yoga. Uh-huh. One was Pilates. One was um, uh, like weight training. One was, you know, jumping around like a kangaroo. There was all sorts of goofy shit that you did. What stuck with you? I like the, I don't even know if it's Pilates. What's Pilates? Is that the one where you lay on your back and you do a bunch of... I actually have no idea what Pilates is. I, that's been a punchline for years as I'm going to Pilates class. I thought it was the one with the bands. Where <laughs> yeah, like I, I you're think doing you're right. Like, so, okay, it's not the Pilates. It's it's plyometrics. Okay. That's like stretching. Sounds like Pilates. Yeah. Plyometrics, Pilates. I'm yeah, not but a, it's like the one where you're kind of jumping around and you're doing a bunch of kind of dynamic, goofy stuff and jumping and box jumps and this and that. It, it, that was fun. All right. Is that what you do on your bi weekends, or is that what no. you do to stay in shape? Ride the bike with Peloton. I am no? a shape. <laughs> I have a shape. I'm not in shape. I got the tear. No, I am in a shape. Okay. It's just a shape of a ball. All right, a pair. But I've seen you move on the pickleball court, as we <laughs> talked about last week. I mean, it's not terrible, but you got a bad knee, so you got to figure out what works for you. A bike is a non. I do the bike, and so I have a uh, a road bike. Uh huh. And I. My wife got me a trainer for Christmas one year. Oh, the, that's a take a hint gift. Like, hey, I know, right? how about something a little nicer? Than right. a we, we do that to each other. When you're married for 25 plus years, you can give those gifts that, you know, like a toaster. I got my wife a toaster. <laughs> Not the most romantic gift years one through 10. Uh-huh. But when the toaster's like a $300 toaster, yeah. then it's a romantic gift. It's like a gift. good toaster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, listen, I sourdough toast is a vice of mine. So. Anyway, it's a smeg. Now, you ever heard of a smeg toaster? I've heard of, I was going to no. say smeg mud. No, but, but that, <laughs> it's called a smeg. I don't know. I've never heard of the smeg toaster. It's a smeg toaster. What's special about it? Why is it a $300 toaster? I don't know. It looks cool. Right. <laughs> it's white. Hey, It says smeg and chrome on the outside. Just a designer toaster? Have you ever heard of Fisker cars? Uh-uh. You got to look up Fisker cars. What's a Fisker car? It's like a smeg toaster. For a car. It's super cool. Just looks nice. Looks cool. Does it work? Electric. Well? Okay. Boogie woogie woogie. Yeah. Right? And then so it's an electric car. I'm very interested in this whole Fisker concept. I am possible sponsor for you. Out. You should look up the Fisker California company. Do you know anybody at Fisker Absolutely or just a not. fan of the fan of the product? I'm a fan of the pictures online. Have you driven? I've never one? actually seen one. Oh, I've never, never driven one. one. All right. I know nothing about it, but I do. I have a, an electric vehicle, as you know. Yes, I do. And so then, if there's other electric vehicles, I wanted to. You know, there, there's another one, new one coming out that's super cool. Um, what's it called? Ludicrous. No, that's that's a rapper. Have you seen the new? I don't know what I'm talking about. Fisker. 
Look Fisker. It up. All right, I'll take a peek at F-I-S-K-E-R. it. F-I-S-K-E-R. I like that you have the electric car and then the truck to, to accompany it. So just My so carbon finding... footprint, I rode my bike to work yesterday. My carbon footprint is very small. Did your wife suggest ride to work or was that just uh, self? <laughs> no, I just decided it was, I hadn't ridden my bike to work since I had my knee operated on. So When was that, by the way? It was like November 13th or something is, like that. Is there still the, the Steve Govett athlete deep down that when you come out of a surgery, you're just like ready to just get Every after day. PT and come in? and Every day. But that's different. I mean, the athlete mindset is different for like recovering from an injury than it is like running a business. Because people get hurt and the older they get hurt, the more depleting and debilitating it is. Did you wake up ready to just beat the shit out of PT? And like yeah, I went for- to PT. In fact, the PT group that I went to that got recommended to me by the doctor, uh-huh. and, but the team doctor, UCSD Health, did my knee, and they recommended a PT group. And I went to this PT group. Amazingly enough, PRN PT. Uh huh. They're now no the free ad seals, but- no free ad, but th- they are a sponsor. Correct. They are now the sp- a sponsor of the seals because I loved the person that I worked with so much. She was such a pro. Um, And it might have been partially, she said, I said I was with the SEALs, and she says, the SEALs, she goes, do you know Eli Goldbrick? No way. And I said, yes. And she apparently went to Ithaca College (laughs) with Eli Goldbrick. And in here in San Diego. Ithaca connection? Yeah. That's unbelievable. So I was... So anyway, I worked with her quite a bit. And the things I said to her, like I, I tore my knee many years ago in college uh-huh. and I came back and played. I actually tore my ACL in one of the first games of my junior year. And I played the rest of the season with no ACL. Oh, God. So, and, and you know, I had a fairly successful season. Tore my ACL, my left ACL, and then got it fixed. Uh-huh. Came back senior season, had a great season. And then had some challenges. My playing career in, in the in the NLL mill, NLL you know first season of the NLL 1998 championship. I kind of messed it up. There were stairs going up at halftime. Oh God! To the locker room, and I literally had three goals in the first half Sick brag. of the game, right? Yeah. And then I walked up the stairs and I buckled my knee on the stairs on the stairs in the locker room. Because there were like four steps to go up into the locker room. How do you buckle your knee? I don't know. It was weird. It was just just like a twist in my knee or did something, you know, running up the stairs. We're excited. We're winning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, win a championship here. I went out there and could barely run. And the doctor says to me, Dr. Larry, um, um, Dr. Larry. Anyway, he says. (laughs) Just Dr. Larry. Dr. Larry. Um, He says he was going to put a shot in it. Like the cortisone shot, yeah. like the classic. So I wanted the shot coach. Yeah, to be able course. to play to finish the game, right? Uh-huh. And he goes because they had they had done a uh, a scope in it a couple of years before that. So he'd been in there, Larry Miller. That's his name. There you go, Larry Miller in Philadelphia. He um, he was going to do a scope. He did a scope on my knee, and then he's going to put a shot in it because I want to play the second half of a championship series. Yeah, this is best two out of three. We're was win- this game we, three? Game one. Oh, we, okay. we were winning game two. Had a really good first half. I was like, let's go. Uh-huh. And he wants to put it on my knee. He goes, you have to promise me you're not going to play it again. Because my knee was really messed up. In that series, meaning no, in no. that series, or in ever my career, again. You're done. Really? 
And I said, okay. And he put it in, and I retired. Now, lots of dynamics going on because – I played. That was my last game in the National Lacrosse League, 1998. Was game one of that series. Game two was the last game. We won in two games. Okay. Crazy story. It was on a Tuesday night in Baltimore. Okay. National Lacrosse League, the mill always had a single game final. Uh-huh. National Lacrosse League, first year, we, get a, we do two things, revolutionary things. We got rid of spandex shorts. Because we wore spandex Which, shorts. What a bummer that right? was throwbacks. for the ladies. Westberg wants to bring the throwback spandex short back to the to the National Lacrosse. Of course League. he does. Him uh, and Doby. Of course. Yeah, Doby would look good. Um, <laughs> and then, where the hell was I? And then, you were in Baltimore, game two, Baltimore, Tuesday. Baltimore, game two, right? And so the National Lacrosse League does two things. They, do, they start best two out of three, uh-huh. and they go away from the spandex shorts. Okay. We had a game one in Philly. We were the top seed against Baltimore. Right. Baltimore can't get the building uh, for the next weekend because they have the circus or some damn thing in town. There's a ricochet shot. So we play Tuesday night. And if we had lost in Baltimore on a Tuesday night, we would have played Saturday night back in Philly. Best two out of three, right? Right. So we go play this Tuesday night game. My mom and dad from Vancouver come down, fly down for the game. The Govets coming down. Mom and dad come down, and mom and dad have been to a couple of NLL games, but never a championship game. Uh-huh. And I had the great kind of good fortune in a five-year career to play in four championship games and happen to win three of them. Um, technically, I guess I played in five because there were two championship games in 98, but whatever. Right. So we win on a Tuesday night. And I, previous championships, somebody takes care of the cup all night. Of course. You got to make sure that it gets to one place to the next and it's at the party. And, and you know, so I got that job as a rookie the year we With won. your knee? No, no, this is a rookie. It was okay, a ni- okay, in 94, okay, okay. Right? I got that okay. job. And so in 98, when we win it again, I've still kind of kept that job that I was the keeper of the cup. That's kind of sick. Slept I mean, that's a badge it, of honor. Yeah, so I'm the guy that like holds on to it, right? Makes sure that it gets to where it needs to go. Of course. The National Cross League Cup at the time, many people have seen it the first year and then beyond until we replaced it with the current NLL Cup. Um, it was There was the North American Cup in the first year. It was a tall, skinny kind of – they used to say it was the Stanley Cup on Slim Fast. It was like super <laughs> narrow, the cup on top. So it wasn't wasn't like Stanley Cup that's like robust. It yeah. was like this super narrow cup. So anyway, this, the NLL Cup, if you go look at Ricky Bobby winning the championship in a lot of all the races he was in, they used one cup in the movie. It was exactly the same cup as the NLL Cup. Really? That's a True story. Go look it up when you're done. You'll so see. Ricky Bobby's holding up the, the the year one NLL Cup. Yeah. So it lasted for like 15, 17 years until re- literally we just got a new one. A lot of liquids been drank out of that original Tons. Cup. And the thing is they spray paint it, right? That's healthy. With a lead-based paint back I'm in the sure day. it was lead-based, which led to a lot of, you know, in, in, intro-gastro-technical Anyway, that's the I'm, good term. That, but you nailed it right there. Yeah. Well, so I'm really curious. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the timeline. You play five years, so you play in that game one. The doctor prompt, like you have to promise that you retire. You play in that game two. 
So I played, I started in 94. Uh-huh. Summer of 93, I graduated from college Correct. In, in May. I'm living in Northern Virginia with my then girlfriend, now wife. And I start, I, Northern Virginia, I, I wanted to play in for the Wings. I'd uh-huh. gone to a couple games while I was in college, and it was just this amazing atmosphere in the spectrum. Just, like, amazing atmosphere in the spectrum. It was so cool. And they won a lot, and they had a bunch of Canadian guys. Gary and Paul, obviously, you know, which I had known kind of growing up against them in Victoria, and we kind of had this long history of, right. of competing. We're the same age. Um, Tom Erchek, who wasn't there yet, but was coming. Dallas Elliott, who was my goalie. Boy, legend. You're dropping some up. legends of the game Yeah, right but, now. like, he and I, he was a couple years older than I was, but we played in Burnaby Minor Lacrosse. So uh-huh. grew up kind of playing Burnaby. He played Vancouver East, and then we played in the same junior team for a number of years. Uh, we didn't win anything in junior because basically we were going up against the gates all the time. Yeah. So And then this Coquitlam team that was kind of always a thorn in our side. So there was kind of three teams were pretty good, top three teams, but we were always number three. Uh-huh. So anyway. After then I, Coquitlam and Victoria? Coquitlam, Victoria, or it was called Esquimalt, Victoria, uh-huh. but um, the Esquimalt Legion was the name of that team. It was Gary and Paul and a number of other Victoria guys. That, you know, Freddie Jenner. Yep. Teddy's brother. Yeah, was yeah, on, yeah. All those guys. So um, – Tons and tons of, of just quality guys who ended up going on to play um, for the vaunted Victoria Shamrocks. And so long story short, 94, 98, I play in the National Cross League for the Philadelphia Wings. You know, I went through the whole tryout process. Tryouts back then were an interesting dynamic. It was two weekends, uh-huh. two sessions per weekend. So you played Saturday, you played Sunday, came back the next weekend, Saturday, Sunday, picked the team. So like, you don't have a whole lot of opportunity. And basically, Tony Resch, who was the head coach, who's a legendary coach, oh, right? Yeah. Tony Resch, roll the ball out, and you scrimmage pretty much all four sessions. It wasn't so a lot just, of teaching. It wasn't a lot of showing guys how I to play. I would have been screwed. I don't know, man. I think you actually would have been good in that scenario because you could just, you just play. Uh-huh. And it wasn't overly technical, Mm-hmm. Now it's super technical. The game is super technical now in comparison to the track meet that we used to call that game. And it was literally you had four sessions to make a team. So you play, right? And um, I actually think you would have done well. I mean, don't you think in a open, roll the ball out, I'm just going to go play lacrosse. I don't have to think about what I'm doing, play the game. You would have done better. Uh, if, if it was settled fives, absolutely not. I, I needed Greg Downing holding my hand, talking to me about what open is, because as you know, we've, we've kind of discussed coming from the Notre Dame defensive system, it was play your guy. Don't worry about the pick. So I was set up to just get blindsided. I think it would have been better for transition. And I think it would have better in certain situations like that. So what you're saying is no (laughs) national lacrosse league team should ever draft a Notre Dame player. No, um, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it would take a special talent and someone who's much smarter than me where For, it can click. So if John Arlotta listens to this, right, I should, or, or Jerry Byrne and some of my friends that might listen to this, I'm kidding about the Notre Dame thing. <laughs> the tough part was I was 75s across the board. I didn't excel particularly at defense. I didn't excel particularly at offense. So when I came in, I was just bad enough to not even get a sniff at offense, and I was just bad enough to not truly understand the defense. But you could just shoot the shit out of the ball in transition. Kind of. The but step down, 
in transition, Nick Casello split to a like that was that was uh, devastating for defenses. Well, the nice thing was is is it was perfect for college, and then when you get to pros and they figure you out. You know, when you when you get to be a one trick pony, because I faced off in college too, and I was a right. good face off guy in college, because you run into Trevor Baptiste once a year, right, and he slaps you around, and then you run into him in the playoffs, and in between that, there's a bunch of, you know, to toot my own horn, lesser athletic Nick Ocello guys who were just thrown out there on face off because face off wasn't a highly technical position. You get to the pros, face off is a highly technical position. Okay, so I'm not a good face off guy. You get to the pros, these transition guys, they already know my right-to-right split. I sure as shit didn't develop my left hand. So I, I excelled I excelled in college. You didn't work on that with the farmers? No. Oh, my God, the farmers. <laughs> Showing up thinking that I was good in college and my head was spinning. Um, no, I think the game is, is becoming more and more specialized where you have very good technically sound guys who can communicate on defense where I could just kind of coast, of, uh, coast off athleticism in college. And I could coast off of face-offs from college, and I could coast off a lot of that. And then when it came down to really having the game click and slow down, that was a five-year process where the only experience I got was in training camp. And then it was play a game if you made the roster, wait four weeks, forget everything you learned about in that game, play another game, and just kind of blow it. Are you talking about the NLL? You're talking about PLL as well? NLL, 99% NLL with that. PLL, it's just kind of like you need to just be better than everybody else, and whatever yeah. you excelled in in college can probably translate. Or have a lot of followers on social media. Or have, a, or have clout, Sorry. one of the two. <laughs> Couldn't resist. So, <laughs> I, the, I, don't, I will never disagree with that. So thing. the point of – what I'm trying to make in the mill back yeah. in the day when you just showed up and had two times a week, you could literally show up and play. And so I only make the Philadelphia wings because I have a little more savvy than 10 other guys that are trying out because I'm a box player. Right. Right. And I played box growing up. How many was, Americans were at that tryout? Well, it was, a, there was a rule back then that you can only have five Canadians. Really? You only have five guys that were Canadian. That we you, need to bring back that rule right now. You like that rule? Yeah, I love that rule. That's my favorite <laughs> rule of all time. And I'll tell the Canadians that they need to get deported. So the interesting thing about that is the Buffalo team. So this is interesting because it changed the dynamic and literally sets the trajectory of a lot of teams in the National Lacrosse League. Today, even today, it's, it's set the trajectory of those teams. So, for instance, Buffalo ha was allowed to have all indigenous players. Not all indigenous. They were allowed to have a number of indigenous players that did not count against their five Canadians. Really? Because the indigenous players are allowed to cross the border relatively easily uh -huh. at the time, of course, um, with their Haudenosaunee passport, right? Yeah. And they were – crossing the border was simple. So, Darris and Rich Kilgore – lived in Tuscarora, which is on the U.S. side of the border, uh -huh. they were able to play for Buffalo because it was their hometown, essentially. But they played in St. Catharines, right, which is super close uh -huh. from a Canadian-American perspective, like 30 minutes, tops, it, even with the border at the time, right? This is, we're talking about the early 90s where sailing through the border was relatively easy, right? especially for the indigenous guys who, 
who kind of had the pass to go back and forth, right? So Buffalo had this, this large contingent of indigenous players because they were a lot of Canadian guys, Six Nations players, that didn't have to have a green card. Or, sorry, not a green card, but a P1 visa. Yeah, right? yeah. So the, the rule was in place so that the league didn't have to get more than five P1 visas. So per team. So if you went around that P1 visa using native yeah. players, what yes. an advantage. They had a huge advantage. And then they started bringing in a couple other guys, like Derek Keenan, who's current uh, GM in Saskatchewan, right? Yeah. He was a superstar. And he played on that team. He ended up playing for a short time on the Hamilton team as well, which we'll get into in a second. But uh, Kevin Alexander, one of the greatest players of all time in, in box lacrosse, a guy that no one's ever heard of here in the U.S. Uh-huh. Kevin Alexander was one of the greatest, not only the greatest box players, but one of the greatest international players of all time. Um, was amazing. And, you know, probably the first African-American player to play in the mill. Uh-huh. Next to Ricky Sewell, who you've probably heard about, but but at the end of the day, Kevin Alexander, amazing player. Um, great story about Kevin Alexander. Quickly, he was a postman in Victoria. I think this is how the story goes. He he, he delivered the mail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And he skipped out on work one day, called in sick, and then goes to a national tournament and scores like five or six goals, and it's in the paper. Oh. <laughs> Kevin Alexander scores five goals it's in the newspaper. Right. He's, he had called in sick. He lost his job. No way. Yeah. So the, the tales of old His you know, boss didn't understand. Yeah. work type stuff. Boss wasn't too impressed with wasn't the five impressed goals at all. So Rochester, right, was a group of guys that were, you know, Western New York, upstate guys. There were a couple Canadians, three, four, five Canadians. Dwayne Jacobs, who was an indigenous guy, and... Uh, Randy Mearns, but Tim Sudan, who everybody knows as a coach, Reggie Thorpe, who was a, a, a great player for Syracuse. But, you know, a lot of Canadian goaltenders kind of mixed here and there. But for the most part, the rest of the teams were Boston, New York, Philly, Baltimore, uh-huh. right? And then Buffalo, Rochester. Much so, further south of the border. Well, where what happened was these guys, it, it tended to centralize in Boston guys – and so it was, it was very provincial. So Boston guys played on the Boston team. You know, Philly guys played on the Philly team. Baltimore, New York, Baltimore, right? New York, New York. Yeah. Well, the Baltimore thing was a little weird because you had some Baltimore guys on the Philly team, like Brian Volker, right, coach at, at Drexel. Right. Um, t- tons of guys like that. Andy Towers, right, Jimmy Rogers, Scott Gabrielson, current color guy for the Wings, mm. right? He was a Philly guy, but he went to Vermont, right? And and so Jimmy Rogers lived in he worked lived and worked in the city, and he would commute down for games. I lived in Washington D.C., Northern Virginia. I would drive up for practices on Thursday nights, or sorry, Wednesday nights, and I was that eat. a two-hour drive, just it's give or take like up. three hours. And practice started at nine, but like in the winter, on a crappy winter day, and I'm driving up ninety-five to get to you know, a practice and you did it every week, you I'd have to leave work at like four thirty to get to a nine o'clock practice, practice for two hours, practice ends at eleven, and then you drive home. I would get in around two, three in the morning. And then I have to get up work work Thursday, Friday, and then we drove up for games on Saturday. You didn't practice the night before games like we do now. So there there was some a lot of interesting dynamics, but the, the other dynamic was you flew on the day of the game. Wow. So if we were playing in Buffalo, 
we got on like a 10 o'clock flight, flew to Buffalo. It was only an hour flight, an hour and a half flight, right? Flew out of Baltimore, flew out of wherever you lived. And you'd go up there, it was an hour. And then you'd spend all day hanging out, waiting for the game, play the game, get up early, go home. Oh, they didn't send you on the red eye back? No. <laughs> Not a lot of red say. eyes, like short flights like that. But like now, so when you move west of the Mississippi to Colorado, that changed the whole dynamic of practice. Uh-huh. Everybody used to practice on Wednesday nights, right? Midweek. Because everybody lived there in the place that they played. Mm-hmm. So the dynamic started to change as more Canadians come into the league and you start to... When did that rule change from the five Canadians to, I'm assuming there was just like, a, all right, let's get rid of that and do whatever the hell you want. It started, so there's a pivotal transition the summer of 1997. Without going into that story, because it's a very long story, but the league changes from the dynamic of single entity ownership with Russ and Chris Fritz owning all the teams in the league Mm-hmm. and getting all of the immigration and all of those to the divestiture of their ownership interest into every team is owned by another entity. So the current structure of what, what we are today and then similar structures to like the NHL or the NFL, the franchise kind of structure. So at 1998, the season, 1998 season, was when it was first implemented. So when I said there was two changes, the spandex, yep, right, and – the best two out of three, there's right. The third was that's when they stopped requiring the number of players. So you were responsible. The teams were now responsible for their own immigration. I feel like that that number three is the biggest change of Huge the two. Change. But you started off with the spandex, so I know where your mind's at. What's what's important? Yeah, well, um, but the the biggest thing that happens that off season is there's the implementation of a team in Hamilton, Ontario. So Hamilton, Ontario starts as a new team, quote unquote, an expansion team. And from that expansion team, they were able to kind of pick up a number of players for the Hamilton Raiders, or sorry, the Ontario Raiders. Uh They were able to pick up a number of players that probably wouldn't have been available to them even two years before. Jimmy Veltman, one of the greatest players of all time, who's now the GM in New York, um, he goes on a mission. To Africa. So he played on the Buffalo Bandits. Him, John Tavares, Troy Cordingly, Darius Kilgore, Rich Kilgore, the great team dynasty in Buffalo. And Jimmy Veltman decides he's going to go, right, magnanimously, he's going to go on a mission and help people in Africa. And what an amazing human to do that. So he goes there for two years. So he leaves the Buffalo Bandits. The rule basically was like, well, if you didn't play for a year, you were a free agent. So he signs in Hamilton. They don't keep his in rights. Africa. He signs in Hamilton. Well, he was came back like, from he, Africa as he's getting ready, to and he come comes back, back to play, and he plays for the Hamilton Raiders or the the Ontario Raiders. Do you know where in Africa he went? Just out of curiosity, I honestly have no idea. Good question for you to ask him. <laughs> I was going to say I need to get him on and ask about you this whole. You should, Jimmy Veltman. He'll tell you all sorts of stories, but the stories of the Buffalo team. The Buffalo team was really, really good. You know. Uh, dynasty yeah. type team but then they start to split and then guys like dan stroop chris gill russ hurd pat coyle <laughs> colin doyle all of these guys go start to play sean williams um kimbo squire bob watson the goaltender like all these guys sign up to play for the ontario raiders right so the teams in buff 
Rochester. that they were just drawn from that had to decimate the Buffalo Rochester rosters. It, yes. So they pulled those guys over. Most of the Rochester guys stayed, and Rochester was really good at the time. So, you know, Ontario Raiders come in, right? And they lose, and like they they won like the last five or six games. They don't they don't get in the playoffs. They kind of don't. They sneak out of the playoffs. They were they weren't good enough to make the playoffs, but they were good enough. If they had gotten in the playoffs, they win the championship. I almost guarantee it. Gary Gate had left during this whole transition from um, the mill to the NLL. He was on the wings, left the wings to go play for the Baltimore Thunder for 1998 for the first year of the National Lacrosse League Baltimore Thunder so he takes his team to the final the wings go to the final I'm in the final he's in the final he we all we played together we were roommates for four years uh-huh so you got dirt on him huh well I don't know about that but Paul Gates Paul Gates stays uh for two years he goes to Rochester because that was closer to his to his home up in Syracuse he was right. living up in Syracuse they started actually the Syracuse smash <laughs> <laughs> Paul Gate was behind that that's in 97. So in 98, name. there was a Syracuse smash. It looked like uh, uh, one of the, the – you should look up the, the logo of the Syracuse smash. It was kind of like um, the the uh, Simpsons where, where the, the cool guy, they made a cool logo guy and tried to bring in a dog. Oh, God. I'm looking at it right now. That's brutal. The yeah. the sunglasses, the backwards hat, like yeah. it's like a bad, uh, it's like a bad energy drink from yes. the '90s. Exactly. Um, so all this is going on, and right, the wings. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> Such a bad logo. It's awful. <laughs> oh Rumor God. has it Steve Scarmazino, but you know that's we'll see. Um, but anyway, all this stuff happens and. The wings and the thunder make it into the final. I jam up my knee, so I can't, um, I can't work out. That's the that's your answer to your question. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say a couple of roundabout ways, but yeah, you brought it back. Brought right it at back. the end. I can't believe that he made you retire, knowing it must have been bad. Where it was like, hey, promise me that you'll get surgery as soon as the season's over, versus promise me you're just never gonna play again. That happens today. Is technology, you know, is it? come far enough to where that would have been potentially on the table? It's one of those things that probably, in answer to your question, but I also had this uh, – it didn't, didn't make a lot of money at the time. Like, I was making like 700 bucks a game. Right. Right, which wasn't a lot of money. It was like $7,000 for the whole season. Right. And, you know, I loved it. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world, and we were playing in this game, and it was like I just wanted to finish the game, so I just said, sure. Um, could I have come back and played another year? Probably. And so I, this knee thing happens, right, and I, I'm troubled. Finish the game. Right. We win championship. So retiring, and I started a little late than everybody else because I didn't go to college until I was 21 years old. Right, right. So I'm not done until I'm like 24, 25. I didn't come into the National Cross League until I was 26. So you're a 26-year-old rookie at training camp. Yeah, and I – That's an advantage. Yes, um, but I played until I was 31. Right. So, you know, career, family, 
What is was it time? your you, you, so you mentioned getting back to like you know and having to wake up for work? What was your work in DC? I had so many jobs right out of college. Just odd job. No, it was weird. Or, I was like a I was a, a mortgage um, processor, right? For a while. Because the funny thing is, is, you get a degree. I got a degree in economics, right? And so in order to stay for a year on your visa. The visa was this practical training visa. And so you had to get a job in your field. So mortgage processing, the mortgage business, because it was finance, was in my field. It had nothing to do with what I studied. Of course not. Nothing. But I got to stay. And mainly I got to stay so I could play. And then I moved into, I moved from there to, um, was selling like Microsoft training or something for a while. And I did that while I was playing. Um, and then when I hurt my knee and I got it scoped, I was working in a, in a golf club. And honestly, I was working in the, in the uh, bag room. You were, that was my first job was bag bitch. Yeah, I was, I'd worked in, I'd pick in the range and do this. Like the I was 27, bit. 28 years old. And I'm like, I want to work in the golf business. I think I was making six bucks an hour. And I was playing lacrosse. Did you get the tips from cleaning the oh, clubs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's yeah. when I made the most money in my life. Scrubbing wrenches, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. How'd you hit them? Oh, buffing like, wrenches. Shit? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that's incredible, yeah, that's Mr. Watson. Yeah. yeah. And you're buffing wrenches, right? Hundred so percent. Did that pulling carts out of the barn, sneaking and doing the booze all. from the carts. So I get a job. I was in D.C. Right. I'm working at Westwood Country Club at the time. I get a job in, working for a company called Golf South selling tournaments, selling golf tournaments. This is how I become a GM in the National Cross League. You're going to think it's crazy. I do not think anything's crazy these days. I go, I'm in um, in Northern Virginia, and I'm scrubbing wrenches, doing all that crap. And there's a job online or something for a tournament, golf tournament salesperson for a company called Golf South. And it's a place called Princeton Meadows. Was up in in Princeton, New Jersey. Right. Princeton, New Jersey was closer for me to Philly, right, than I was, and I could stop doing this two hour drive, two and a half hour drive, yeah, or get out of Northern Virginia. In the winter. I mean, I don't know anybody that is on the Beltway at any point in time around the DC Beltway. I didn't want to be on the DC Beltway anymore. Like it was just a gong show. So my wife and I decide um, we didn't have kids. We're going to move up to Princeton, New Jersey. I'm going to take this job. And I hit it off with the GM of the golf club. And I went to work in the golf business selling tournaments. Uh, about nine months into my job there, the GM leaves and goes to open a golf course at LSU. And they made me the GM. So I become the GM of a golf course. And I learned that job for three, four years while I did it. And... Was selling tournaments. And when doing you say all you stuff. learned that job, like what? What actually were you learning? Was it like the management side of yeah, things? Yeah, I mean, like you learn how to manage I mean, people. Crap. You learn how to manage budgets. You learn how to read P and Ls. Um, you know, you, you kind of understand and learn what the what business is, how to drive, you know, consumers and golfers, and how to do tournaments and. You know, how to keep your expenses down and how to manage people and how to manage customers. And uh, the golf business was really strong. And you probably know this from your experience, but it was a really strong opportunity to learn how to serve, like customer service. Oh, yeah. 
right? And what, understanding what the difference between the fr- front of the house and the back of the house, right? 100%. So as you progress, it's got food and beverage, right? It's got merchandise. And it's got ticket sales, which is really golf rounds, right? So as I finished my career in that day, winning a championship, I'm in the golf business. I'm, you know, my, my wife's ready to have our, our first child in 98, just right, had, had her in, in May of 98. She's ready to do that. I'm kind of like ready for like what's next, what's different. After four years, you said five, five, five years being in the, the GM. National Lacrosse right. League, and then I, oh, I'm three or four or, years of GM, and right, right, and so that was all good and cool. And I decide at that point I'm going to retire. And it was at that point that Mike French, who was the GM of the Wings, says, "You know what? I'm missing things because I'm not really paying attention. I got a real job. He was working for Price Waterhouse Coopers. He was in, he was busy, and he goes, I need somebody to be the GM. And so I they asked me because I had this sports marketing experience in the golf business, uh-huh. and I said sure. And like I literally took the job for eighteen thousand bucks a year. Um, it was a it was a year round job, but theoretically it, it was supposed to be part time. Right. I stayed in the golf business, and then I was working this part time job for the National Cross League. But it was really my passion. Um, and so, yeah. Was that tough to balance? I mean, I when you said you took the job for the NLL, I figured that would have been like I'm leaving golf and I'm going to go be the GM for this new, you know, well not new, but this different team no see so my job was to work mainly on team operations as a gm right so my focus was making sure that we had a winning team and wings were good i mean they were good one in 98 right um and so my job was to keep competitive like keep the competitive balance and make sure that we were good and and i love that but but it was it was an it was a part-time job so I was supposed to be doing this at nights and you know and on weekends when we played. Think about the golf business though in the Northeast. Summer heavy golf, right? Yeah. That's all. It was sixty hours a week on golf course operations. Yep. And then it was like another ten hours a week on the wings, right? Okay. So that was summer. And then there's like, you know, the draft you have to do and you have to do meetings and you have to do this and that. And so I, I was melting it together, which was fine. And then as you get closer to the fall and you got to do training camps, you got to do this and that, golf begins to wane. As it gets in the colder. Northeast, right? As it gets as, colder, there's yeah. less golfers, so there's less activity. So it was easier for me to kind of balance the, okay, that 60 hours a week of the golf course is coming down to, you know, a more normal 40 hours. I'm able to kind of go up to 25, 30 hours a week on on lacrosse. April must have been a shit show. Well, what really became difficult is is in the golf business, when you when it gets cold, you lay everybody off, right? Everybody goes away. Kids yeah. go back to school. Seasonal. They go seasonal, work at the mountains. Right? So who do you think works in the shop when you lay everybody off? The GM. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be management. Yes. They're not going to lay themselves off. Exactly. So management. So I'm literally working. You think it goes down. It's 50, 60 hours a week in the wintertime. And it's not as, as let's, in, let's say, intense in the winter. But you still got to be there. Yeah. And so, and then all of a sudden, like every once in a while in New Jersey, you know, you get that 40 or 50 degree day and everybody comes to play golf that day. Yep. Right? Uh, so I was just 
it was just what I was doing. You still kind of handcuffed to that, just given the you got to be there. Someone randomly walks in to buy a shirt, yeah, or, exactly. You know, pops in. Yeah, or members come in to you know get lunch or yeah. whatever, and you just had to be there. So the that's so it started to become a lot. I have my first child, right? Family growing. My wife's a teacher, um, you know, and so I have this opportunity to become the president and GM of the Washington team. So it was kind of after a year where we lost. I talked to Gary Gate. Gary's in Baltimore, right? Now, keep in mind, you've, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Baltimore Thunder became the Pittsburgh Crossfire, became the Washington Power, became the Colorado Mammoth. I didn't know that the I didn't know about the stop in Pittsburgh. Yeah. I knew about the other three. So at the end of the Pittsburgh year and the end of the wing season, Gary and I we talked all the time. We're good friends. Right. I'm like, so what do we do now? He goes, I don't know, I'm thinking about moving this team. The owner doesn't want to do it. I'm buying gonna buy this team and you know where, where should we play? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And so we, the conversation starts to go back and forth. He goes, I got a guy I think that'll buy the team. And so he's going to give you a part of the team. You can own a bit of it. And I was, I'm like, okay, fine. He goes, he wants to move it to Washington, D.C., which is where he was from. This owner was Ted Leonsis's attorney. So we moved the team to Washington, D.C. They bring me on board. I started on Halloween. That was my first day. <laughs> Start day, October 31st. Start day, October 31st. We played our first game on December 31st, December 30th. Oh, that's a quick turnaround. We launched the team in two months. That's a very quick turnaround. Yeah, that's why we didn't sell any tickets, but whatever. Bottom line is the team was pretty good, but we were moving this, this Pittsburgh Crossfire team, which was pretty okay, good team. Had Gary and Paul Gate. That right? helps. So it's a good start. Helps. Moved to Washington, D.C., and then we brought in a few Canadians. We brought in some guys. We ended up going to the semifinals and played Toronto in the semifinals two years in a row um, and lost in overtime both years to an unbelievable Toronto Rock team that goes on to win the, winning the championships. Both years? Both years. Oh, that was but So then the th- you know in the third year, it's like we don't have any money. Second year in Washington, we don't have any money, and – Long story short, not very capitalized. The owner of the team is going out trying to raise money by kind of valuing the team at like five million bucks. So, just as an FYI, two this team transacted in 1999. He bought the team for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. He paid sixty thousand dollars in cash and a hundred ninety thousand dollar note, right, to the former owner. When he sold the team to Stan Kroenke for a million dollars, $950,000, two years later, we paid everything off, paid it all back, and he paid off that $190,000 note, took his $60,000 out, and he, right, we, he bought that team for two fifty. Two years later, we sold it for a million bucks. Don't ask me how. I was going to say, who, who was, on the, right, who was well, on the buy side of that valuation? Well... A lot of people from Cronky Sports, but they also looked at it at the same time. You probably remember this as a Colorado kid when they brought in the Colorado Crush. Oh, yeah. The, the John L. I remember John those Elway, commercials. They, right? Yeah. We started the same year, and it was a question of whether they were going to do one or the other. They were going to do lacrosse or they were going to do football. 
and they they said, screw it, let's do both. And they did both. The Mammoth paid back that million-dollar investment midway through year two. Really? Yeah. That's not, Was it immediate success? Was Denver immediate just success. the perfect location? I mean... I don't know. I mean, I could go into a lot of reasons why I think it happened, but it wasn't one reason. What was the, what was the turnaround time from the time the team was bought? So you had two months to launch a team in Washington. I'm assuming the plan with Denver went a lot better and gave you more of a runway. A little bit more. We launched the team June the 6th. What year was this 2002. Oh, two. Got it. How old were you? Five? Uh, no, I was born in 93, so I was nine. Nine years old. And boy, was I the biggest little mammoth bastard fan love you ever it. met in your life. I love it. Because I, I do remember it was as soon as the mammoth launched... It became every Christmas, every birthday, every friend's birthday. It was the thing to do, and we were head over heels, fully in love with with box lacrosse to the point where that became our heroes more than college and more than outdoor, more than any other thing. Well, the interesting thing is Colorado always had this robust college, or sorry, not college, but robust high school lacrosse pocket, Mm -hmm. right? Kent, Denver. Colorado Creek. Academy, Creek, you know. Wheat Ridge. Yeah, well, yeah. and <laughs> Even though the program folded, RIP. So it had this robust kind of pocket of lacrosse. And part of it had to do with Vail, right? The Vail tournament. Yep. Where all these guys came out to Vail and played, and some of them never went home. It's a big thing with DU. A lot of these guys go play at DU, and they never, never leave, leave Colorado. Well, there's the other thing is there was a team called there was a pro league, in it was outdoor pro league in I want to say the '80s that started briefly may or may not have heard of these guys called the Denver Rifles. You uh, heard of the Denver Rifles? I have not heard of the Denver Rifles. Never so, even. So it's really interesting. So the reason why a guy like Peter Schaefer, Lance Savage, um, Dan Pratt. Sam, all these guys, Billy Hall, all these guys end up in Denver, right? That are lacrosse guys, Division I lacrosse guys. There's this team called the Denver Rifles. They got recruited to come out and play on this pro team. And it lasted, I want to say, I don't know the whole story. Peter Schaefer is another great um, interview you should get and talk about the Denver Rifles because it's a funny story. Peter's an NFL agent. Yeah. And he's got his own stories in his own right. He kind of cut his teeth. Uh, as Barry Sanders' uh, agent, really, right? So that's how he kind of that's a launches himself in the business, yeah. right? Yeah. Hey, how so, are you? So um, he he does a really he's, he's got a bunch of players in the National Football League right now and, and does an amazing job. But so he starts as a as a lacrosse player coming to Denver, and that's how he starts. He came out as a Denver Rifle, and they all stayed. I don't right? blame them. They all stayed. And and so this robust pocket of lacrosse in Denver, a bunch of people wanted a team in Denver. They wanted something. Pro lacrosse was kind of destined to work in Denver because of this pocket. And when we went to Denver, which was different than, let's say, going to Washington, D.C. or Baltimore or some of these other cities, people in Denver didn't care if it was outdoor or indoor. They didn't care. Right. Gary Gate was on the team. They wanted to go watch Gary Gate. And Cronky Sports, married with the National Lacrosse League and Box Lacrosse, brought together a lot of really cool um, visionary people 
that helped launch that program, um, launched the, the, the mammoth, right, with great game entertainment, which was always the best. Kyle Keefe launched that group. Brian Kitts launched the sponsorship. Tom Filan did an amazing job on sponsorship, and uh, Brian Kitts was marketing. Tom Filan did sponsorship and, and, and all these other things. And then Jeff Plush was a, a good guy and, and helped me kind of navigate the Cronky Sports landscape. And amazingly enough, right, game one, 16,000 people. The line is two miles down the road at the Conoco Station. You know where the Conoco yep. Station. Oh yeah. The was it actually? Did it get I'm all the way lying. out there? Got all the way down to the Conoco Station. No way. Because they didn't open enough ticket windows because they just didn't anticipate the walk up. Oh my goodness! I will never forget walking. So Tom Filand, who works worked at Cronky Sports, doesn't work there anymore. Walks up to me, goes, "Can we hold the start time of the game?" <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, what happened? Like, why? And I'm like, you know, I mean, there's no TV. He goes, well, there's a line about half a mile long outside trying to get in. Can we hold the game? So I go up to Les Bartley. Les Bartley is the – and keep in mind, he's the GM head coach of the Toronto Rock. He's just the head coach at the time. Johnny Meridian was the GM. He comes up to me, and he, or I go up to him, and I say, can we hold the start of the game? But keeping in mind that this is the same team that knocked us out of the playoffs. Did you have a little two years? Well, we had a, little, a bit uh, of a – Up yours, yeah, I mean, kind of. Yeah, and so, you know, you got to go over and say, hey, can you help? And he was the most gracious – like, we had a rivalry. Yeah. Because they had beaten us. Like I, th- it's all, I, f- I think rivalries are funny. I don't know how you feel about rivalries, but rivalries are always stronger on the team that loses. Infinity percent, right? In a hundred, I don't think anybody would disagree. So some with that. people say they have a rivalry with somebody else, but the winner doesn't think there's a rivalry. Yeah, it's the little brother. It's wow. Bob, yeah, we hate the Calgary Roughnecks. Why? Because they beat you all the time, right? Hate the Whip Snakes. Why? Yeah, the Whip Snakes yeah. don't care. Yeah, hate, I no hate rivalry. The rush. When I was on, when I was playing for Colorado, I was like, God, I hate these Rush guys. Why? Because they embarrassed me in front of a huge crowd. Yeah, but they don't care. No, they could. It's not a rivalry they don't know for anybody, them. No, they did not know who I was, and I hated them with a passion. Yeah, and that makes it ten times more insulting. I'm like, Hey, screw you guys, and they're like, Who are you? Getting who are you'd? Yeah, is the worst thing ever. Have you ever got to Google me? No, I, I think that's me. kind of a loser move to say Google. Early me. on, it was good. Okay, that's right? probably a little bit Early too Early on, it, Google Me was good, but now it's overused. Right? I, I did the Who Are You to very well-known, prominent guys. Like, I remember, because, <laughs> like, well, you have to go kind of in the – I said that to Mark Matthews when we were playing Sask. Like, because I slayed to him. I split my head open. I had to get, like, three stitches after the game. And he goes, bet that hurt. And I was like, who are you? And he just looked at me like and kind of started laughing. I'm like, that got a bigger reaction than like any F you or anything would have gone. So I used the who are you like almost to try and get the very well-known players off their game. I did a who are you to Terry Sanderson. No. (laughs) How do you react? So set the stage. I'm the GM of the wings Uh and I'm on the bench. So I'm (laughs) opening and closing (laughs) a door, right? Right. Um, just because, like, I just retired, I couldn't sit upstairs. I quickly figured out that sitting upstairs is a way better experience for me. Uh-huh. Um, but, like, I, I opened the door. And 
Terry Sanderson was a new coach in the league for for the Albany Attack was the name of the team. Um, and he there all there was between the two of us was glass, like plexiglass. Yeah. So he's opening the door here as an assistant coach. I'm opening the door here. Little melee on the floor, something happens, whatever. And chirping, players chirping back and forth. And he starts giving it to me. Now, my career in the National Lacrosse League included a number of pugilistic activities. I fought a couple times. Of course. I thought I was a relative tough guy. Yeah. Right? Now, I truly didn't know who this guy was, this heavy bearded man next to me that was only 5'9". Right. I didn't know who he was. I, I was a Western Canadian guy. He is a legend of... Ontario lacrosse. Everybody knows who Terry Sanderson is. I didn't because I <laughs> he'd never been in the National Lacrosse League before. I didn't play a whole lot of man cups or minto cups because I wasn't very good. Uh-huh. Right. So I don't know who this guy is. He's chirping me. I'm chirping him. And he's like, like giving it to me. So we're leaning around the plexiglass and I go, who are you? <laughs> who are you? And he got like pissed. Beat red. That I said that. And he's like, so as I walk away a few years, well, a couple minutes and a few months later and figure out who this guy is and the stories of who Terry Sanderson is, <laughs> I realize that he had his right hand cocked ready to go. And I have my left hand and I'm like, I'm not doing any damage with this. No. <laughs> yeah, and he's got Thor's hammer yeah. <laughs> ready to load up and dummy me, right? So anyway, I, I, who are you to Terry Sanderson? Unbelievable. Yeah. So, um, sorry. So, so to go back, uh, there's a, a, a line a half mile out of, uh, of Pepsi Center, now Ball Arena. You go and ask the Toronto GM, do you mind if we delay it a little bit? As a rival, you said he responded graciously. Massively gracious. And he's like, anything we can do to help grow the National Cross League, this is awesome. If you can, you know, if that, yeah. So we that do- has to be like the best pro. Hey, can we delay the start game? What? Why? Because there's a line of fans to the gas station that's a half mile away. It's the greatest thing I'd ever heard. Now, keeping in mind, right, I, I played in the Philadelphia Spectrum uh-huh. when it was full. 16,000 people, full buildings, craziness. Wells Fargo Center that they currently play in, full to the rafters. The Buffalo Auditorium, right? That same building they play in now was full, right? Like, I played in full, full buildings. I went to Washington, D.C. and couldn't figure out how to crack that nut. Now, retrospect, looking back, it's hard to do when you don't have any money to advertise and you don't have, right? And you're trying, you're on a shoestring budget and it was, it was just tough. Yeah. And so we played in, we played in the, it was funny because the Philadelphia Wings just this past weekend played two back-to-back games. They played Saturday night and they played Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. Yeah. That's the first time that that has ever happened in the National Lacrosse League since December 30th and December 31st of 2000. With the Washington? Washington Power. That was our first game back-to-back. <laughs> Welcome at noon, to the show. At noon 
on on the 30th and then noon on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Quick turnaround. Two noon games back to back. It was Toronto and it was Buffalo. In Washington. In Washington. At the, Makes at the it old, a little better. It was called the MCI Center at the time. That should have probably given us kind of a, uh, a, a hint as to what our future would hold. MCI. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so the MCI Center now, I think it's Verizon Center now. Um, in Washington, D.C. It was right downtown. And then ultimately our next year, we moved out to what was the U.S. Air Arena. Uh-huh. Um, and it was the old Cap Center. Yeah. And it was mothballed. This building was mothballed and empty. Um, and they've torn it down since then and built movie theaters, which I'm sure they're doing well. Yeah. Now. Good good um, decision always. So the that building, old and mothballed, but it was ours. But it was kind of crazy a lot like Pachanga Arena. In fact, a lot like um, the Calgary um, Saddle Dome, the way it was shaped. Right. Just shaped that way. Not not exactly like that building, but it wasn't updated. wasn't anything. So we played in there. We didn't do very well. And so, like, we moved from Washington where, you know, big challenges from Washington to Denver. And you're telling a guy, hey, can we hold the game? Because Toronto played in that very first game on 1230 in Washington, D.C. when the building was empty. And so Larry, you know, uh, um, you know, their their head coach was there. And he was, you know, we, we talked and I said, you know, hey, can we do this? Les Bartley. And he says yes. So I go upstairs because now I'm not on the bench anymore as a GM. I go upstairs to this little room that they put my name on. It's at Steve Govett GM. And I'm like, I think I've made it. <laughs> and Look at me. I'm the big cheese. People start filing in from this thing. We hold the game. There's 16,200 people you got to watch game it. one. You just got to watch it, it swell up. And I'm, I'm not kidding you. As soon as they started playing the national anthem, I'm, I was bawling. I was crying. Just the Canadian or the American? Uh, either one, but it was a Canadian anthem. Like they play that first. Yeah. The lights went out. I'm a mess. I'm a puddle because I'm like, there are 16,000 people here. Yep. We did it. Yeah, we did it. We made it. Mom, get down here. So I go in that week, kind of peacocking around 16,000 people. And the uh, president of Cronky Sports at the time who played lacrosse at Middlebury College. Really? He was the managing editor of Sports Illustrated and the managing editor of Time Magazine. That Some would say that's good. Pretty impressive, right? Yeah. But also played lacrosse at Middlebury College. Love that. Previous to that. Love that. And Don Elliman, who, amazing man, and was my boss at the time in, in Cronky Sports. What was his title? He was, he was the CEO of Cronky Sports. Okay. Uh, and then David Ehrlich was his number two Um who I've become really good friends with, but Don Elliman, amazing man. And uh, he was a lacrosse guy. That's partly why that deal got done because he kind of pushed it through being a lacrosse guy. Right. And so he sits in this meeting and I walk in, like I said, I'm peacocking around and he goes, well, what's up? And I go, 16,000 people. And he goes, any monkey can do it once. (laughs) So I'm like, all right. Okay, and, you know, next game, we sold it out. We went on a streak of, like, six or eight sellouts in years two, three. We would flirt around the 18,000 number, which it was 18,007 
and we'd flirt around 17 eight nine hundred to eighteen thousand standing room only ever a true sellout uh yeah we sold out we had standing room crowds oh I, we had more than a sellout like no tickets available do when do you say hey nick thanks for getting your 12 buddies thank you for ah there buddies. we know thank so you, you, you i thank your once. parents for yeah. buying the ticket <laughs> yeah th- thank you steve and linnea appreciate it <laughs> uh so last question. I know we've been going uh, going pretty far here. But have you wait? Have you asked a question yet? No. This is this is best. This is the best <laughs> podcast we've ever done by a mile. Not that last week was killer, but this is what I want to know. You walk in once, sixteen thousand at the first game. You peacock a little bit. Any monkey can do it once. Do you go in and just kind of slap it on the table and say, "Yeah, what about twice? How you like me now? How you I like didn't. them apples?" I didn't because Whoa, I felt like on. your record stands on its own at that point. Um, and, and again, you know, you live on 15 years of a record in Colorado that was fairly robust. I would like to have won more championships, right? um, one day we can get into the dynamic of how difficult it is to win outside of the horseshoe. Now, if you know what the horseshoe is, Toronto, Buffalo, Rochester, it's hard to win. And if you, if you follow the national cross league at all, 21 years out of the last 22 years, a team from Buffalo, Rochester, or Toronto have been in the finals. Like, think about that. It's, it's mind-blowing, right? Yeah. I, it, it's mind-blowing and it's not, knowing how East Coast-centric. It's like, you know. Ontario, easy yeah. to get to. Yeah. Like, understanding how difficult it is for players in the National Lacrosse League to get on a plane and fly to Colorado, or fly to San Diego, fly to Georgia, fly to Vancouver, and play at their peak, right, physical ability after flying for three hours and practicing late at night with the time change, right? There there were guys in Colorado that practice started at 8 or 9 o'clock because that's when you can get the practice facility after the youth soccer game that just went on. Yeah. Right? Practice starts at 9 o'clock. Well, on the East Coast, for Gary Gate, who just flew from Baltimore to come out and practice for the Colorado Mammoths. It's 11. Or Jay Jalbert, or No. Yeah. It's 11 o'clock, right? And so by the time they get out of practice, get a bite to eat, get something. Their time, they're in bed by 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And you wonder why it's so difficult to kind of, A, recruit guys to play that don't turn around and go, hey, I got to go home. I got to. I got to live at home. Matt Vince, who we selected in the dispersal draft, right, before the trade for Matt Vince and John Grant, right? If I had to do it all over again, I love John Grant. I would have taken John Grant 100 times out of 100. But that being said, we had Matt Vince. The greatest goaltender probably in the history of, of the league was a member of the Mammoth, wouldn't sign with us because he's a teacher, in St. Catharines, right? And just needs to, I mean, can't needs his do life. It. He just yeah. can't swing it. And so you wonder all these years about why certain teams win and certain teams don't win and why it's difficult to do. So you get a guy like a Dylan Ward who moves to your market. That's gold, man. Yeah. Right? Gold. If he wasn't such a jerk. I mean, I can't talk about him. Ever. He's on another team, but. <laughs> yeah. His well, girlfriend isn't very nice to me either. But Ooh, wife now, right? No, it's not married. Fiance? No. It's fiance, though. They're fiance, yeah. Yeah. He can still get out of it, though. Yeah. There, there's yeah. still time. I heard her 
Italian cooking is subpar. Really? Yeah. I'm going to need to explore that. You further. should check it out. And I heard meatballs aren't very good. Uh, I'm going to, I might have to do a video series when I go back home. Top 10 meatballs. Top 10 meatballs. Uh, and coming in at dead last, the Ward household meatballs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just to talk. Ali Hulis' meatballs. <laughs> dead last. Beautiful. We'll get into that next week. But Steve, always appreciate you hopping on. What a roller coaster this was. This was I, phenomenal. You this really is, need to keep it on the rails, though. I what do you want me to cut you off when you're telling phenomenal stories? No, what am I going to do? do? You yeah. should do. You should never do that. Yeah, you're saying you need to keep it in the rails, <laughs> and then if I kept it in the rails, you'd say stop interrupting me and let me talk. The old catch twenty three situation. Catch twenty two. <laughs> Beauty. Thank you, Mister Steve Govett. This episode is brought to you by UC San Diego Health, ranked number one in San Diego by U.S. News and World Report. Last time I checked, being ranked number one by U.S. News and World Report is a good thing. They are the official health care provider of the San Diego SEALs. Big fan of their work. That's UC San Diego Health.